0: July 1960, while flying over a remote section of northern Canada, a Canadian aircraft patrol pilot suddenly encountered the huge shape of a strange unknown giant. But what was it? And where did it come from? Now comes a motion picture that explores this incredible mystery. Don't miss Sasquatch.
1: Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is...
2: Hey, it's Nick Vance, Patreon Futures on all social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at CinematicVoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim. What are we getting into today?
1: Well, Nick, we're going on a search for one of the most beloved cryptids that ever was put on film, and that, of course, is Bigfoot. We have two special guests on this episode. Joining us first will be Pamela Pierce Barcelo, the president of Boggy Creek, and the daughter of Charles B. Pierce, who helmed the Bigfoot movie that started all the legend of Boggy Creek. Then we'll be chatting up one of our longtime friends and Sasquatch expert Bruce Holchek from CinemaKana about some of his favorite Bigfoot movies. Before we go chasing after Skunk Apes, I want to do a little housekeeping, you know, just kind of get these things out of the way. I'll be at Crypticon Seattle Friday, August 27th through 29th, where I'll be debuting the live version of the Cinemanus movie. If you want to come check that out, that will be on Friday night, and then on Saturday, I'll be moderating a really cool panel, which can't really talk about yet because it hasn't been announced, but really excited to do this panel. It's some heavy hitters involved. Lastly, we've been gearing up for a big fall on the Cinematic Void Podcast. I just wrapped up the last interview for a Salem, Massachusetts episode that I'm really excited to share. It'll feature Kay Lynch of Salem Horror Fest, Rachel Christ from the Salem Witch Museum, James Loggio, the owner of Count Orlack's Nightmare Gallery, and Derek Millen, creator of Detours, which is one of my favorite YouTube channels. Plus, we'll have clips from my Hocus Pocus and Lords of Salem Q&As I conducted back in 2018. And Nick and I also recently completed an epic career-spanning interview with Kayla Janice, the author of House of Psychotic Women, and the director of Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. And of course, the cinematist Movie will keep on rolling as well with a brand new episode on August 13th, presented by our friends at Culture Shock Releasing. With that said, let's take a little break, and then we're going to go hunt some Sasquatch on the Cinematic Void Podcast.
0: If a pizza with three toppings costs $10.99, what would I pay for six toppings? Mm-hmm. Well, 10
3: the
0: reason is it's, Bigfoot. it's the Bigfoot Big Six Pizza. Get our special six toppings for the three topping price of $10.99. Are you sure you're the Hut guy? Bigfoot from Pizza Hut, a legendary value.
1: Joining us now is the president of Boggy Creek and also the daughter of the director of Legend of Boggy Creek, Charles B. Pierce. Please welcome to the void, Pamela Pierce, Marcelo. Pamela, how are you doing today?
3: Very well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me onto your show.
1: You're welcome. My first question before we get into the film itself can you tell me a little bit about the actual legend behind the Fook monster?
3: Yeah, sure. So, The Legend of Boggy Creek is based on a true story. In 1972, when it was released, it was released as a documentary. For years before, there had been sightings. It's actually pronounced FALC. FALC is about 12 miles from Texarkana. For quite a while, there had been reports. And then in 1971, there were a group, like kind of a cluster of sightings, and it actually garnered, I believe, international attention. It was, it definitely was nationally. And so all of these different uh, news groups came down and they were interviewing. And, and so that's the, the Ford when the Ford incident occurs and Bobby Ford is attacked and goes to the hospital, that was, it was like almost mass hysteria in that area. And so later on my dad has decided then by this point that he wants to make a movie, but he's working on a kind of mountain man adventure, which later on he, he, did a lot of those but so that was he was working on that as his first movie it was actually called bright river and he and earl smith the writer were in los angeles doing some pre-production work and later on earl and my dad actually wrote sudden impact go ahead make my day but this is their first excursion they're doing their pre-production work driving down sunset they see these kids teenagers wearing Falk Monster t-shirts. So my dad says, you got to pull over, like pull up. So he jumps out and he's talking to him. Now I actually read this in Variety magazine or Hollywood report or something that was released in like 72, my dad's talking about this. So he says in the interview, by the time that they were getting back in the car, he was saying, Earl, we are writing the wrong movie. We got to go home. So they go back. They call it, the working title was Tracking the Falk Monster.
1: Obviously, one of the films that kind of like, when it came out, that actually acknowledged and referenced Foggy Creek was the Blair Witch Project because those guys were huge fans of it. And, you know, it's it's interesting that like, you know, there's a lot of docudramas that were made, but this was one of the few early on that was as effective as possible because it felt real.
3: It does have... uh, A lot of people give it credit as being the first docudrama. And later on, you'll see uh, like Unsolved Mysteries and the kind of crime shows today. And you kind of compare it to Boggy Creek and it's very similar, but they didn't have that. If you adjust the earnings for, you know, today, Boggy Creek is the third highest grossing documentary in history, which that's really the only release it's ever had. We don't know what it did in the bootleg. You know, have no idea. So those numbers, that $25 million, which equates to $150 million today, uh, was only for that theatrical run between 72 and 75.
1: I was going to say that's very, very impressive, especially because, like, it's an independent movie. It's a movie about Bigfoot. It's a docudrama or documentary style thing. It, that's just incredible. So, what I want to ask you about now: I know you were very young while the film was being made, and I know you have a little role in it as well. But can you share some memories you have from the production?
3: Sure. Yeah. Running the first child in, saying, "Grandpa, Grandpa, we saw him. We saw the Falk monster." And my—that's my real mother in the kitchen. She's peeling potatoes, and she says, Shh, "You're going to wake your grandpa," and you know, "I'm going to get a switch," she says anyway, then, so we go out in the field and then we see the creature step out from, you know, and my mom starts screaming, don't run, don't run. And she's running. So that's my real mother playing Bessie Smith. And I was in the third grade. I didn't really know I was going to be doing that that day. My uncle, who is my mother's brother actually, uh, worked for my dad. He was one of the teenagers that was schlepping the camera and all that stuff. And, he was pretty tall. So when they couldn't find another person to wear that suit, my uncle would be the one to do it. But I know that my uncle came to pick me up at school. He was in a bad mood. He said, your dad needs you. He's going to put you, you're going to be in a scene or something. And he was just really in not a good mood. So when I got there, I asked my dad, I said, where are you going to see it? You know, I mean, I wanted to know, that's what I want to know. Are we going to see this creature? Well, he was ignoring me and trying to stay away from me. When the creature steps out, that is a real scream because I didn't know that was going to happen. So that was kind of fun. And it didn't take, it took like an afternoon. It didn't take, we did all of that in one take. The other thing too is my father, most of the money, he ends up running out of money on the third day of principal photography. And most of the money had been spent on film. He wanted that technoscope, which if you know about technoscope, I'm sure you do. That's that wide angle uh, film format that was developed, I guess, in Italy for the spaghetti westerns. And he wanted it to have that big cinematic, you know, that just to envelop you kind of, which was super important when it was released because you really kind of felt like you were there when it starts out. And it says, this is a true story. And then it goes dark. For 30 seconds, and you're sitting there with crickets and frogs. And then, you know, it's very effective because you're sitting there thinking, This is a true story, you know. And then it's a G film. So you've got a lot of younger kids, and like Blair Witch and others, your mind does all that work for you. You know, you don't really have to show a scary monster, though. Uh, He was pretty scary that day. And that was, uh, so Steve Lidwell, heir of the original producer, Buddy Lidwell, his daddy, put the money up for the film. And so uh, when my dad and Buddy broke up in 75, they actually broke up because, so Mr. Lidwell was a big, he owned a big trucking outfit. They still do. They make custom trucks, big rigs, all that stuff. So Buddy would like to make money and all this stuff. Anyway, my dad talks him into, to putting the money up well i didn't know this all that time my dad got paid as if he were an owner but my dad didn't own any of the film but he held that title so immediately they wanted to do boggy creek remakes of course and my dad wanted to show that he could do more and he really wanted to do dreaded sundown but dreaded sundown again is based on a true story and here are the lidwells who were very socially prominent mrs lidwell's family had founded the methodist church you know i mean they were kind of upstanding so they could not having the Falk monster a movie made about that that was one thing but they were not going to do dreaded sundown so they broke up well, when they broke up, Mr. Weddle had already made a whole bunch of money on that movie. He didn't need to make any more money. Video home, the home market was just beginning like in 75. And the movie had played during that time a lot, as you probably, you know, in some theaters, it stayed for a whole year. Okay. It played for an entire year. By that time in 75, when they split up, he put it away and that was kind of it, that wasn't his business. And so there it really kind of sat short of this poor quality pan and scan, you know. But when the internet came along, I went pretty early on. Well, my husband said, sit down and did what's now surfing. So I sat down and it was asked Jeeves, and I asked Jeeves, who is Charles B. Pierce? And then up came all this stuff on Boggy Creek. And that's the first time I ever read and people said, Somebody needs to get the rights worked out and somebody needs to get us a good print. I did call my dad and that's when he told me, he said, well, he had traded it to Buddy, which wasn't exactly true because in a way, I guess, but my dad went on and did Winterhawk and Mr. Ledwell had been with him at the beginning of Winterhawk. So they separated during the making of Winterhawk and then Ledwell got Boggy Creek and Bootleggers. So that's where it had sat. And then they didn't look back, you know, and they, they've got a big outfit there. When th- somebody calls up and says, oh, I want to do this with Boggy Creek. They just, it, you know, they just didn't even return phone calls. So, and then my dad would say, oh, that they had a bad breakup, but this is who my dad was kind of, and he was like, oh, they don't talk to us anymore. <laughs> and so I didn't, you know, it was like, if you see them go the other way, well, of course he, my dad didn't want me saying anything in case I you know, because my dad turned out to be one of the bootleggers. <laughs> so, you know, but, so in 2014, I, can, I was still reading this all these years later, and I, they said, get the copyright, get it to print. And I was like, yeah, somebody needs to do that. Somebody needs to do that. And then, Uh, Finally, it kind of falls into my lap. I'm, I'm named the executor of my father's estate. My father had Alzheimer's. And so what happened to him actually is they say at epidemic levels now with people that have Alzheimer's or dementia, as he got sicker and sicker, people moved in and isolated him and pretty much picked him dry. My husband is a businessman. And he's got a bunch of stuff going on. So I was just going to stay out of it. But, but my brother was calling me and he found a will. So he's like, here, sister, help me. So I filed that. And when I did, I, I let these people know you need to turn over whatever papers, whatever you have, I need to see it. Well, they just pretty much ignored me. So when I don't have anywhere to go and I don't have any information, I don't have any papers. Finally, I decided I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to contact Steve Lidwell because by that time he was the only, the sole heir. Steve actually plays the monster in a lot of it. So there were three different people that played the monster. So Steve Lidwell was like 21 or 22 when this was happening. And uh, so he then owned it. And so I called him and I said, You know, my dad had come to him. He said, no, Pam, your daddy never came back here. (laughs) He said, we never got any more money, you know, whatever. So I was, it was a little bit embarrassing, but the fact remained, nobody had a good print. And by this time in 2014, people were now asking for a Blu-ray. So I said, well, would you let me see if I can find it? Let me, let me see if I can find, track down a good print. And would you let me do the Blu-ray? And so he said, yes, he would. And so that's when it started. It took four years to find a good copy. I finally found it at the BFI, the British Film Institute. So, and then we were almost complete with the restoration remaster when Mr. Leadwell discovered the original negatives, sound reels, all that stuff. So we ended up using the original magnetic sound reels for the sound part of restoration. So that's kind of fun. I've been working on the soundtrack and that will be coming out imminently. So that's been really exciting and uh, surprising. You know, I knew that people wanted Boggy Creek. I had no idea that people really wanted the soundtrack. And there's a whole, as you probably know, there's a whole genre for horror soundtracks. So that was fun to hear. and. So let me just kind of tell you about that a little bit. So so the soundtrack was done by, uh, his name is Jaime Mendoza-Nava. And for years, he had worked for Disney, along with Tom Boutras, who is the editor of Boggy Creek, and some others. And so when it came time to do the post-production work, They went to Los Angeles and Jaime and Tom and several of these other guys had been laid off from Disney and they had formed their own post production company. So when he went in there, he was actually, those guys were experts. You know, they really, they've been doing this for a long time. It's the first documentary to have its own musical score written, especially for it. And so Jaime had worked on like the Mickey Mouse Club. And other pretty, you know, some other well-known Disney stuff. But the, the big thing he'd done right before was that he, he wrote all the interludes for CBS's Walter Cronkite's, the Apollo mission or whatever, you know, when they were, I think they broadcast for 24 hours or something like that. So all that music was done behind me. So, it's, so he was in good hands on that part. And then, so do you, and do you know about the poster, the Ralph McQuarrie?
1: I know it's one of the most iconic posters ever made. I don't know what the origin behind it is, but I would love to hear it.
3: So Jaime and those guys introduced my dad to Ralph McQuarrie. And Ralph had done some work for Boeing, I believe, and NASA. And so he creates that. It's actually an oil on canvas painting. My dad brings it back to uh, Texarkana. He had an art director who worked for him because my dad had an ad agency when he was making the film, one of the guys, and he's actually credited in the film as the art director, John Ball. So John Ball did the bottom the, it's where it says Boggy Creek, The Legend of Boggy Creek, G-Film, all that typography at the bottom is John Ball. All right, so Ralph, let's go, so the image is created by Ralph McQuarrie. In 75, George Lucas had these scripts that he had, Sent them to all the major studios in Hollywood trying to get the green light, this Buck Rogers kind of trio of scripts. And so he hires McQuarrie on the spot. Uh, McQuarrie creates the 21 storyboards for Star Wars, it gets the green light. Ralph McQuarrie is the production designer for Star Wars, all of them. And he literally created the looks of, you know, C3PO. R2-D2, Darth Vader, the stormtroopers, and Chewbacca. So in the things that I've read, they say that that, uh, George Lucas wanted Chewbacca to be like his dog, was his inspiration, and also a lemur. And I do see a little bit of a lemur in the neck, and I see that companionship like a dog. But more than anything, I see Bigfoot. And so <laughs> to put uh, the Falk monster, the father of Chewbacca, for the Falcon monster to be, because that was his first work right there. So I could also see somebody that had worked for NASA and Boeing, that they could come up with spaceships and that kind of stuff. But this creature that lives in the Arkansas swamps, that was a whole different thing. And let me tell you about John Ball. So the art director of Boggy Creek, he does the bottom part and he works on my dad, um, about five films with my dad, including Dreaded Sundown and Evictors. And then he goes on, he moves to Kansas City and he goes to work and he's kind of a hippie. He likes to go barefoot, he's got long hair and it was kind of a suit and tie place. So they give him this far off office and they name it Shoebox Greeting Cards and that's Hallmark. And Shoebox Greeting Cards is the most profitable card company in all the world and all the history and it's their most profitable division. So when you think about it, that poster actually represents more billions and billions of dollars. Star Wars is the most profitable franchise in all of history. And then, so you take a commercial artist such as Ralph McQuarrie, who's created that kind of value for his employer. And then you add John Ball on top of that. You see what I'm saying? And that image is very unique in the two artists that created it.
1: That's a, absolutely amazing that like that poster spawned Chewbacca and Hallmark greeting cards.
3: You know, my dad was very, um, that was maybe one of his greatest gifts is that he was able to recognize talent very early on. And he gave a lot of people, you know, their first kind of, uh, job. So in the entertainment business.
1: Before we talk about the restoration all that, I kind of want to circle back to after Boggy Creek came out and became a very, very, very financially successful. What did that success mean to your father at the time? Because he basically created his career as a film director.
3: No one really ever anticipated the kind of success, you know, and it was, I mean, it was, People camped out in lines with, you know, with sack lunches. And that didn't happen before. You know, people didn't wait in line for movies like that. Godfather was number one at the box office. That was the year Cabaret, Poseidon Adventure, uh, Deliverance. And I think Boggy Creek was number eight or nine. So it was, you know, I mean, and all those other movies had been released by you know, big Poseidon adventure, I mean, you probably remember that, that was big budget, you know, and even the Godfather was big budget, so, so my dad was just, he was thrilled, and he was paid as if he owned 50%, and I think by the time that they got the distributor and stuff, it dropped down, but, but he right away bought a Ferrari, well, first he bought a Corvette, okay, and then then he went back to Los Angeles. Now, the first time he comes back from Los Angeles to Texarkana and he's got the McQuarrie painting and stuff and one print of his movie, one print, he rides the Greyhound bus home. Okay. Cause he can't even afford to really get home. He's just kind of limping back and he was way over budget. And uh, so they had no idea, but again, it was that poster and then it became word of mouth. So people would say, have you seen this movie? You've got to see this movie. There's never anything like it before, you know? And he four-walled. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, artist,
1: it, but... I'll explain to the people who might not know. Four-walling means he basically paid for the theater. He, he rented the theater, but any money that came in from his ticket sales, he got to keep. So basically, he put it's a risk because a lot of movies do four-wall. A lot of people do it around Oscar season, trying to get Oscar nominations for films that probably shouldn't but like a lot of independent distributors start out doing four walling because then they don't have to give a percentage of the box office to the theater they just take what they get
3: well and a lot of times they don't want to do that when my dad was trying to get a distributor for boggy creek they hung up on him i later on like when he does dreaded sundown for sam Arkoff, he was just so thrilled because Arkoff had literally hung up on him on the first go-round So, uh, later on to do that, you know, he was, that was very satisfying, but my dad really never had the budget to do, like he wanted to really do some epics. If you ever saw the Norseman, you'll see his like grand try for that, but he can make movies for practically nothing. And that's before, you know, now we have the iPhones and you can film just about anything and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But back in the day, you had to have lights and cameras and you know assistants and you know all that stuff so
1: it's a testament to your father because like you know do yourself filmmaking and like kind of regional filmmaking at the time. there's a lot of people that did it who basically did one film and then disappeared he he's one of the rare breed that actually made a career and he got to work with um AIP and I think he yeah. also worked with Roger Corman and obviously he wrote a you know a Dirty Harry movie for Clint Eastwood so like he yeah. managed to parlay a little independent film about a legend of a Bigfoot monster into a full career. And that's kind of unheard of.
3: In his body of work, I think there's maybe 13 or 17 films that he produced, directed, released. And out of those, actually he he wrote a lot more. There's a lot of unproduced scripts that I'm still working to try to, to get a hold of and get them, Like Clint Eastwood, okay. Clint Eastwood is anxious, has said through his assistants that he's anxiously awaiting these other scripts. So I'm working on that. But out of the the ones that were produced, two became cult classics Boggy Creek and Dreaded Sundown. And the sixth most famous line, according to the American Film Institute Go ahead, make my day. So for a little bitty, you know, kitty show host from Arkansas to have two cult films and a classic, you know, top 10 movie line that that was that was that was kind of a good, you know, that was kind of a big deal.
1: Again, I'll say that's utterly amazing. But talking about something more amazing is that the work you put into getting Boggy Creek restored. Do you want to talk a little bit about working with the George Eastman house?
3: Oh, that's been such an honor to do. Uh, Early on, when my probate attorney and I started working together, he said, try to think like your dad would think. So that helped a lot. And I know that my dad had great respect for Eastman and Kodak and, you know, all of that. So So one of the problems here was the rarity of the actual film reels. When my father and Mr. Lebel had broken up, uh, I was told that there were about 650 copies of the film, each copy consisting of five reels. So when they broke up, he told the distributors, ship all that film back here to, to their headquarters in Texarkana. So you can only imagine five reels times 650s, you know, a lot of film. They were swimming in film. So he ordered them destroyed. I think they burned them. And it wasn't any like mean reason. It was just that that's how you took care of stuff like that back at that time. So when that happened that wiped out most of them. And then so every once in a while they would find one. I ended up getting a copy from the Joy uh, Cinema in New Orleans down there on Canal Street, which that was my dad's distributor. And that was his landmark uh, theater. So the, the print that I ended up getting first came from there. It was found and I ended up buying it. I won an auction on eBay. Lyle Blackburn, the the cryptozoologist kind of alerted me to it. And he said, said, I know it's not public domain, but a lot of people, that's kind of the rumor. And he said, there's uh, two bidders, anonymous bidders, and they're going at it pretty hard. And it's already gotten up to about $2,000, which is unusual. So he said, if I were you, I'd try to get it. And at that point in time, my daughter actually said, you know, I don't think that you have anything else in the house that, you know, like I was thinking like, you know, I was I actually ended up putting in a bid at about eleven thousand dollars or something because I was not going to lose that. You know what I mean? So I kind of gathered all my resources that I could and I got it for about two thousand dollars. But anyway, so I posted that on It was right before Christmas, a couple days before Christmas. I was like the best Christmas present ever. So, of course, the fans, I have a lot of uh, Boggy Creek fans and my dad's fans that I'm friends with on Facebook. So they all, so one of them said to me, do you have someone to do the restoration? No, I didn't, you know, I was just going each step. He said, I've got some connections to the George Eastman Museum if you would like me to introduce you. Well, when the guy said, do what your dad would do. And he says, George Eastman, I know who that is. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And here's the other thing too. Because Boggy Creek had been all these years in the home market in that pan and scan, it really did give it that cheesy kind of quality where when the film was originally released, it was critically acclaimed for its cinematography, you know, and even its music and those kind of things. But I mean, the sound effects had, all that had diminished. I couldn't even hear it. So I wanted someone, I didn't want just to, nobody. I really wanted that prestige of like a George Eastman museum or something to kind of give it that cachet. I watched uh Night of the Living Dead and how they kind of had proceeded. And that was, you know, I, I kind of followed that a little bit. The other thing too is I live uh, near Ken Burns, the documentary filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And so Burns had been instrumental. He introduced me to his entertainment IP lawyers for the copyright side. And uh, he did a lot. He does a lot of work with the George Eastman Museum. So, you know, if it's good enough for Ken Burns, it is definitely good enough for me. So Kyle uh, Alvitt did most of the work. He had been there, I think, for 40 years. He told me that when he was 19 years old. He got a job, they assigned him a number, shoes, you know, I think a bank account, like everything. And he just, he worked for them for all those years. They have a school as part of their their program at the museum. And I was happy to have students work on it. And I was very interested and want to know, what do these young students, what did they think of the film all these years later? Does it hold up? And all those kind of things. And So they do, they all enjoyed it. They ended up getting Boggy Creek T shirts to wear to their graduation and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's been it's just been a real honor. And I I think of my dad and how he would have really have liked to have done this. So himself, you know, because he just would have. He would have liked to have done it, I'm sure.
1: I mean you're obviously cut for the same independent spirit here. So that leads me to my next question. Now there's countless boutique Blu-ray DVD labels out there who I personally feel like would have been interested in putting this out because it's a title that's been not really readily legally available, maybe never legally available in home video at all cuz probably VHS for bootlegs at that point.
3: All home media everything. VHS television, everything after 1975 consisted of that pan and scan bootleg copy. That was it. It's the first official release. Yeah. In the first, in the correct technoscope wide angle format. So now we're putting you back in that seat that you were in in the theater and it kind of enveloped you again. So, and the pan and scan didn't have that, as you know.
1: Yeah, it's obviously like Pan and Scam was one of the greatest disservices the home video market ever did the cinema. But I guess to finish off the question I was going to ask here is like, how did it come about that you ended up self-releasing Volky Creek on Blu-ray and DVD?
3: So I just never really heard from anybody, to be honest with you. Like I, I wrote to Criterion because, you know, I asked people, I said, who is, you know, who's out there? They told me Criterion's the classy, fancy one. Of course, that's what I wanted to. So I wrote to them. And these days, you can't like call anybody because they have that whole eternal thing on the phone. It's just beep, beep, beep. And so, and then I didn't have anybody's real email. So I just wrote into the general thing saying, look, here's, my name is Pam Pierce. My dad made this movie and I've restored it at the George Eastman and I'm looking for a distributor. And I kept waiting for one to show up and nobody ever showed up and so it's just that every single day people were writing me like when are you gonna release it what are you gonna re-? and i was like i mean how complicated is it you know so i used to hang out with my dad a whole lot and he liked to watch television and so he would pull us all together and we would watch afternoon television he used to love people's court but anyway so we would be watching it and they would come on the Christie lane. Do you remember Christie lane? There was a gospel singer saying sweet one day at a time, sweet Jesus one day at a time. And it would roll. and say, 1-800 call this number. And, and they kept playing it over and over and over. And my dad said, that's the way you do it. You own all your own Christie's. He said Christie's shipping those out to those people. And you know, so that was always intriguing to him. And then, Early on, a fan said to me, Do you realize how rare of a position you are in that you own and control this classic movie? He said, That's reserved for names like Disney and Turner. And you know Warner's or whatever, he said that just doesn't happen. And so when he said that, it made me more cautious. And I reached out and I found they're the they were the, they're the number one independent uh, producer of Blu-ray DVDs, and they make them here in the state. So that's who I went to first. And they've done an excellent job. I, I love the way that they authored the the thing. We we actually won uh, first runner up in the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. We, we won first runner up for best Blu-ray DVD. And we, we uh, got an honorable mention for best restoration. So that was a real honor because we were up against Criterion. We actually lost to Criterion War of the Worlds. And, but we were against like Warner Brothers and those. So my husband uh, is an inventor. And he invented a, a very beloved arcade game called the Czech C-H-E-X-X, Hockey. And they sometimes they call it the Bubble Top Hockey. So he had done that. He had, uh, he had invented simulator uh, arcade, uh, like amusement rides. Some of Mission to Mars at Disney was based on a ride that my husband introduced there. And, uh, and then he was working on an ATM that connects to the internet, which is a whole different thing. Anyway, so for about 30 years, I worked pretty closely with him and went to lots and lots and lots of meetings with attorneys about intellectual property. So when that time came that I called Mr. redwall to, you know, to ask him if he'd let me put it on a Blu-ray, by that time, I, I had an idea of what would be needed, you know, what I was going to need to do. So I did have that little bit of background. And I do feel this sounds crazy, but I do feel like I was called, if you, if that sounds uh, a little bit unique, but I, I felt like I was caught, like a higher calling kind of, and I remember kind of wrestling about it, thinking, I don't have that kind of money. You know, how am I going to do that? I don't, you know, I don't have money like that. And I don't know anybody that does, you know, I haven't been in the film business in years and years. So, but I did get this, like, it was, it felt like instructions. It was like, you step out there and then each place, when you get to that bridge, there'll be the people that you need. They'll be waiting for you. It's so that's what I did. And it's each step of the way, really and truly those people have been there. So it's, it feels like almost miraculous. If as crazy as that sounds.
1: Before I let you go, Pam, uh, my last question for you is what does the future look like for the Legend of Oggy Creek and its legacy as well as your father's legacy?
3: So I really hope to do a documentary on the making, like how Boggy Creek was made all the behind the scenes, because the story behind Boggy Creek and my dad's life is almost a greater story than anything he ever put up on the screen. So I hope to do that. I actually hope to do a, a drama, you know, with it too. I, I'm, uh, I hope to, I'm, I'm trying to find a way, I'm gonna reach out to Billy Bob Thornton actually, see if he wants to like do a, a screenplay, whatever. He's from Malvern, Arkansas, which is only a hundred miles away and was there when the whole thing. So there's, uh, there's, some, there's some people that I think could really do the uh, do justice in telling these other stories behind the scenes. And, and then I actually own that Ralph McQuarrie painting. So I hope to get that into a museum so that people can go and and see it. Uh, right now, George Lucas is working on his narrative arts museum, but there's not a lot of places that you can see Macquarie. So I, that's that's a project that I've been working on. So I do have some people. I got lots of interest on the soundtrack. So um, and I I think that I've picked my my label that I'm going to go with. And I'm going to go ahead and do get some help. It's it's a little nerve-wracking to do this by yourself.
1: Yeah. Like a lot of boutique Blu-ray labels, there's a ton of boutique like soundtrack labels out there that do quality work. So and I don't know, and you don't have to reveal who you're going with, but obviously, like the the there's a lot of top-tier ones. So whoever you go with, you can't go wrong, especially with something like this.
3: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited about doing it. I I never in my wildest dreams considered that. Part of it, but early on, Lyle Blackburn, who's been extraordinarily helpful in this whole process, had said to me that was one of the most uh, p- common questions that he got is as people ask about the soundtrack. So uh, when we found those original magnetic reels, that was just so exciting. I want to say this too. That scream in the movie is the first vocalization ever recorded of a creature like this. So that is, you know, that's the real thing. And they, my dad and Earl and those guys recorded it as they were making the movie.
1: That's, that's incredible. Pamela, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, real quick, before I let you go, can you tell fans of Boggy Creek or people that are just now learning about Boggy Creek, they're listening to this, where they could find Boggy Creek merch at online.
3: Sure. Yeah, At www.legendofboggycreek.com. We have a store t-shirts with the Macquarie image posters, that whole thing. And we also, uh, we have a store Boggy Creek on eBay and you can, uh, stream it on Amazon, YouTube movies, Microsoft, and iTunes. And soon I will be uploading it in 4K on my own. It'll be on my own site, boggycreek.com. So that that I almost have complete now. So you'll actually, because a lot of people have asked me, where can I, Amazon, I they I can't load it up on Amazon in 4K. <laughs>
1: Uh, so, somehow that's not shocking
3: it will soon be available for fans that want to see it in 4k and then hopefully in the future if we keep going in the direction we're going you know we'll have a, a UHD, you know sometime in the future but
1: excellent pamela thank you for your time and um look look forward to what else is coming down the pike for um legacy your father and obviously boggy creek
3: thank you thank you so much i appreciate you inviting me on hopefully we'll do it again soon
1: yes let's absolutely do it again
3: bye -bye, y'all
1: stay tuned we'll continue the search for bigfoot on the cinematic void podcast after this break into Cinematic with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinematic movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at CinematicVoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinemag Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the Void. Joining us now is the Emperor of Cinema Arcana. You're a trash aficionado, Bigfoot enthusiast, and the only ska band drummer I will ever tolerate. Please welcome to the Void, Bruce Holcheck. Bruce, how are you doing?
4: Hello, hello, hello. Happy to be here. Uh, it's about time. I've only known you guys for like 25 years. I mean, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and speaking of drummers, uh, little known fact, Me and Nick were in a straight edge hardcore band known as Inner Struggle a good 24 years ago, maybe. Uh, Could we have come up with a more generic name for a band? Like, would that be possible? I think it was maybe a a title of a Strife song or something. (laughs) (laughs) Are are, are you still nailed to the X? Because I'm pretty sure my my nails fell out. Nowhere close. Sorry. (laughs) These things happen. (laughs) <laughs> i think we uh wrote like four songs and played one show possibly i think it was just that one show yeah at <laughs> like some vfw hall and some yeah wherever, right wherever it was like the a fire hall that. right a yeah. fire hall in like bel air south or something the good old yeah. days the good old days and jim we've known each other for just pretty much the same amount of time, all of us being in in local Maryland bands at the time. And you and I became friends over a mutual love of garbage horror movies. Yeah.
1: I, I've mentioned, I've if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know, I've dropped Bruce's name a lot. And by the way, how do you actually say your last name? Is it Holchek or is it holachek as you so said? He, so, so here's the
4: thing. When I was growing up, I always pronounced it Holchek. A weird, long roundabout story, but whatever. We got time. When we were doing the interview, with, when I was doing the interview with Sybil Danning for Chained Heat, I came back and she was talking up a movie that she co-produced and had some financial interest in called Panther Squad, which is now out on Blu-ray from Full Moon. So she asked me, oh, hey, you know, is there anything you could do to possibly get this movie out there as well? That would be great. You know, I'd love to work on it. And so I looked it up and found out that Eurocine in France had the rights to the film. So I got in contact with uh, Daniel Lassour, who was in charge of Eurocine at the time uh, and still is, to get a screener copy of it. And he started calling me on the phone from France. Because he was really interested in my last name. It turns out his wife's maiden name was Holacek. And we were just like, well, that's crazy. You know, what a, what a small world. And, uh, he's like, oh, I was like, you know, I pronounce it whole And he's like, oh, you know, over here it's it's pronounced Holacek. So I said, okay. So I talked to my granddad and said, Hey, you know, what is the correct pronunciation of this? And he said, well, it was Holacek, but when we came, when the family came to the U S it became check because that's just how it looked, so that's how it became pronounced. And then for you know three generations, that is how it was. But in the spirit of being a Euro trash aficionado, uh, and after talking to Mister Danielle Lassor from Euro SNA, uh, I decided I was going to take it back. And now it is pronounced Holcheck.
1: Because I was about to say, I thought it was I was going through a Mandela effect or Bernstein <laughs> Bernstein Bears thing. After right, all years. right, right, right. It's like, how, how is it some guy that I knew for like fucking 25 plus years? And like, I didn't know his last name.
4: Right. Yeah. It's, it's funny because art on the untold story commentary, he pronounces it. I think at the beginning, he actually, I pronounce it correctly. And then he keeps, keeps coming in saying a whole check. And then he was listening back to it. And he's like, wait, did I fuck up your name? So yeah, this is not the first time I've had this conversation and probably won't be the last. And who knows, maybe some day down the road, I'll decide to change it again. But either way, you know, we're, we're good.
1: Uh, So besides, you know, punk and all that and love of horror movies, like Bruce has been one of the people that was instrumental to introducing me to a lot of movies that I wouldn't have seen otherwise because Bruce was an avid collector of VHS from all over the world. He also had a lot of bootlegs, and he was kind
4: enough to dupe me some of those. Like three on a tape at EP speed, dubbed from my bootlegs. Like I can't even imagine what those look like. The the shit we used to put up with—it's ridiculous. And now you get fucking beautiful HD. That's a—it's an amazing thing to
1: think back on. But Bruce also loaned me his copy of the Deep Red Horror Handbook, and like all kinds of stuff that informed me to make me the just trash cinema enthusiast that I am today. So it's, you know, I'm really happy to have Bruce on here. We tried to have you back on, I think one of the Fulci
4: episodes, but you, I think you were doing commentaries when we were recording. Yeah, maybe I, I get really obsessive when I'm doing a commentary. Uh, so it sort of becomes all consuming as compared to other people that just, you know, jump on the mic and shit some of these things out. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I yeah, I, it, it's a lot of work for me. So yeah, usually I kind of shut things down didn't limit uh, any other activities for for a little bit as i'm putting them together i'm actually working on one now for severin that hasn't been announced yet that's due at the end of the month another one with the uh, art ettinger for a uh, italian exploitation favorite so hopefully we uh, don't screw that up
1: regardless of how you say your name now but the re- <laughs> the reason why we have you here today is because besides all the the horror and the euro trash and all that kind of stuff
4: you're a big bigfoot enthusiast say it five times fast fuck you but <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean it's always been a subject of interest i mean you know back from the band days i mean we used to you know have bigfoot emblems all over our stuff and like our our lyrics notes on our cds and stuff had images of the Squatch. so yeah it's it's an interesting thing you know ever since we were kids and i mean you guys are you know roughly the same age as i am Uh, So growing up in the eighties, I mean, we, you know, always, you know, we were kind of, I, I, I wouldn't say inundated with Bigfoot, but if you watched the kind of programming that we did things like in search of and unsolved mysteries and shows like that, eventually they would all have a Bigfoot topic. Plus there was, you know, plenty of, uh, you know, there was movies, there was, you know, made for TV movies and Bigfoot was just kind of like a part of popular culture. And it was really fascinating to me. The idea that, you know, there could be these, you know, (laughs) crazy humanoid creatures living out in the woods was just always really cool. And, you know, it probably helped that, uh, those episodes of those TV shows were creepy as hell anyway. Another thing I should mention is that where your parents
1: lived was in, say, Northern Harford County in Maryland, not Mm -hmm. trying to, give away much but it's pretty why de- why,
4: yeah why, why don't you tell them the fucking address
1: Jim? well it well you have to take <laughs> you know fuck i i almost thought i could remember <laughs> the address after all these years but <laughs> but you basically lived in the middle of fucking nowhere there's right. woods around you so theoretically you probably lived near a bigfoot
4: probably right yeah i mean the, the odds were uh good
1: because I, I remember we used to go up to your um at your parents house for movie night and like this shit got fucking creepy out there in the woods <laughs> i don't i don't want to put you on the spot but i know at one point for years and i'm hoping this still happens so maybe as we talk about on the podcast we can build that energy you okay. you always want to make a bigfoot movie
4: oh yeah big time uh yeah titled wrath Squatch, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> which i i remember that i remember pith parts of the concept i don't want to give it away because i don't want anyone stealing this shit <laughs> but like because it, it it's I hope it happens at some point because it's a masterpiece waiting to happen.
4: Right. I mean, it, it'd kind of be like an art house, uh, Bigfoot splatter fest, like sort of imagine if like uh, Alejandro Hodorowski <laughs> was in charge of the uh, Patterson Gimlin film, uh, it would be fantastic. <laughs> The highest of high concept Bigfoot movies. But well, and it's really funny because a lot of the shots that I originally <laughs> wanted, like, we trying to plan out, like, now would be so much easier with drones. Like, now that everybody's doing, like, those HD drone shots, like, every single independent movie you watch nowadays has this damn overhead HD drone shot, like, over the woods. And that would have been, like, so perfect for uh, what I wanted to do. I'll never make it. Because uh, let's face it, I'm old now, and there's not a chance in hell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you, you can't know. give up. Can't give up on your dreams, goddammit. it! I'm telling you, we, we missed the right time. You know, the early 2000s would have been where it was at. Uh, but such is life. Such is life. But I guess we can talk about
1: a few Bigfoot movies that did get made. And I, when I. We talked about doing this episode. It's like you picked the movies, as we like to do for some of our guests. Right. And you picked five, one of which we're just going to kind of gloss over because uh, we talked to the creator's daughter in the previous segment. You still want to mention. So we're going to go ahead and talk about that one and your, I guess, second pick. As Yeah. Yeah.
4: So so we'll, we'll, we'll go into this a little bit. So interestingly, you know, one of the coolest things about Bigfoot films in general, at least to me is the idea that it's almost like Bigfoot mania was almost a uniquely American genre. You would get a few films uh, from other countries, you know, like Hammer did an Abominable Snowman movie uh, in the 50s. Toho did Half Human. There was that crazy 70s Italian movie, Yeti, Giant of the 20th Century. That's really bonkers. But it also has an amazing uh disco theme song which is probably better than any of the music for uh, any of the rest of these bigfoot movies so you should probably end the show playing the disco theme from uh yeah the giant of the 20th century but none of them really feel like true bigfoot movies to me so after you know we had mentioned the the patterson gimlin film which is you know the the campers in the woods who you know notoriously quote unquote filmed the bigfoot And that's become like really the most legendary footage and the, you know, most seen image of, you know, any of these Bigfoot things. And, you know, that that was kind of like all pervasive in anything Bigfoot related uh, that we saw you know, when we were kids. So with that footage, like the scientific community kind of like shot it down, but where it really blew up was in pop culture. You know, they licensed it to all these like investigative report TV shows and news channels and documentaries and stuff like that. So that was really kind of step one in the, uh, you know, the, the, the cultivation of Bigfoot mania in the U S and there were a few Bigfoot movies after that, that came out in the U S like there was that, you know, sort of biker versus Bigfoot movie, Bigfoot with John Carradine from 1970. Um, And there's the hardcore porn, the geek, which basically, you know, this this guy uh, that looks like they just threw a bunch of shag carpets all over him, running around the woods, trying to rape chicks. So that was from 71, but it wasn't really until 1972 with Charles B. Pierce's The Legend of Boggy Creek that things really went nuts. So The Legend of Boggy Creek purports to tell the story of the Falk Monster. It's a hairy creature living in the swamps of Arkansas. Um, the whole film's kind of told in a documentary style, um, relating multiple stories of the beast crossing paths with the town's residents, usually told by the townspeople themselves in the actual locations where they allegedly happened. To me, where the film really gets it right is in its atmosphere. Uh, they, they kind of keep the beast hidden for most of the film and you know the it's shot in scope for some reason which if you're trying to lend a movie a documentary feel I don't know why it was shot in scope because it's a lot of handheld camera work but it really does capture a lot of that you know deep south sort of like Arkansas flavor to it um and mixed with the voiceovers uh I mean it's almost I don't want to oversell it but it's almost like a Terrence Malick-esque uh combination of like these voiceovers with these these you know deep woods visuals and it really gives it a, a, a great creepy atmosphere that i think really worked well especially considering the movie's g-rated you know there's really nothing explicit about it at all but it really kind of gets under your skin in spots and and really is, is quite terrifying for what it is the thing i like about Boggy creek is
1: like it's actually is what I like about Charles B. Pierce's movies in general, because like he kind of liked the docudrama style, like *Counted of Dread mm-hmm. Sund- Sundown, which I just recently rewatched on 4th of July. Not that it's a 4th of July movie. I guess Zodiac would be the quintessential serial <laughs> killer on fourth of july movie but right. it's a good southern fried movie even though it has the bit of exploitation comedy where mm-hmm. I, actually i think it was charles b pierce's character plays the comedic role
4: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it's so weird like right andrew prines like running around and stuff and right the, the cops are so ridiculous and then the the horror scenes in that movie are really strong and that's what i like about his style because like
1: you know, like he came out of advertising, which, you know, mm-hmm. a few filmmakers have come out of advertising and industrials and stuff. But like the, the reason why I think Boggy Creek works, especially when you. Yeah, I think scope is not really a documentary format, but like for something that gives a grand view of the south and living there and a creature in the woods. It's a perfect format. Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, it, it's it's G rated. So a lot of kids could go see it. It's weird that it got nearly lost after all these years because it has right. theatrical run and just like went to VHS and was on the bootleg market ever since. It's kind of like a weirdly sincere, I guess that's weird to say sincere about a Bigfoot movie. But, right. But, it's very sincere in how it's done, and it's like you know, real people and real reactions. And it's like when I talked to Pamela, she kept talking about the Blair Witch Project, which has a similar like capturing of blending of reality and not reality. Well, obviously, there's more reality in Boggy Creek because people thought they saw and heard of the monster, whereas Blair Witch is none of that shit actually happened. But right, it it kind of did create a format of like. Things that come like or the the trick of like this movie's based on a true story kind of stuff
4: mm-hmm. yeah well I mean and that's kind of the you know uh one of the rules in the uh exploitation rule book is that you know it doesn't necessarily matter how good a movie is it just matters how much money it makes and this one you know you know the budget was estimated at like a hundred thousand uh and it pulled in like 20 25 million on the rental circuit and the theatrical circuit which is an insane amount of money for an independent and I mean they're really kind of uh you know is what turned charles pierce into a filmmaker but yeah you know it's 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 funny because one of the people who disagrees uh with the film um is one of the guys who actually served as a consultant to it you know one of the people whose family were you know had some of the alleged encounters with uh the the Falk monster um and they're peppered throughout the films themselves so that would be smoky crabtree who actually wrote a book about the entire experience of the film and what, what he claims the film got wrong. Um, so I actually, sometime in the nineties, you know, back in the good old days, I actually called Smokey Crabtree on the phone because I had this idea that I wanted to do an article about Charles Pierce and I wanted to have some sidebars to it. And I thought one of the cool ideas would be, you know, a a small interview with Smokey Crabtree to get his perspective on it after, you know, learning about his book at the time he had like this website, Um, set up with all this stuff so i just called the number to see if i could get his information and like he answered the damn phone himself uh and he's just this old guy but he completely refused to be interviewed about the movie and he's like you know he basically told me he's like i don't wish charles pierce dead or nothing but i hate that son of a bitch so like he was really pissed off that the, that Charles Pierce turned Boggy Creek into a horror movie because essentially he was saying, you know, that's not what it was. You know, it was this creature out there in the woods and he was trying to claim it was benevolent and, you know, it wasn't attacking people and stuff like as, as displayed in the film. But I mean, if you're going to make a movie about it, you kind of need to have it build up to those attack scenes. And I think that's what really works. That like, you know, that, that siege finale is really what makes the movie memorable. I mean, did he want Harry and the Hendersons? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I and, and there's part of me that wonders if maybe he kind of got screwed as part of like the business deal and got real jealous that Charles Pierce made all this money off the movie. But I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, he wouldn't submit to an interview no matter how hard I argued with him for it. I'm like, oh, no, this is your chance to tell your side. Uh, and he's like, Brah! So. I guess we'll never know the, politi- the politics of Bigfoot movies right right and he's dead now I mean he died <laughs> you know, a, a few years back so I guess I guess maybe I should buy his book to get his perspective but whatever
1: maybe that's what it was it's like I'll talk to you after you read my book <laughs> right exactly
4: but yeah so so like after after Boggy Creek hit I mean there was you know there was multiple docudramas uh, a bunch of which you know incorporated the uh, uh patterson gimlin footage and so you, you had like the mysterious monsters and sasquatch the legend of bigfoot and um i mean there's tv movies like the curse of bigfoot and, and snow beast and then just standard theatrical kind of horror-esque movies um like bill Rabain did one called the capture of bigfoot uh joy m halk did you know if, if you have the cre- uh legend of boggy creek why not have the creature from black lake like close enough <laughs> um which actually that one's Going to be coming out on Blu ray as well, uh, pretty soon. You know, there was their uh, Synapse is actually going to be popping that out. It's a good time to love Bigfoot in HD, I'm telling you. But yeah, I mean, he even, you know, even fought uh, the six million dollar man in a, a major two part TV uh, event. So, uh, yeah, the 70s were, were, were a major, major uh, era for Bigfoot Mania.
1: Now, the next film we're going to talk about came out. Oh, and, well, oh. before you
4: get to that, I do yeah. want to say, so yeah, if you haven't picked up uh, uh, the Legend of Boggy Creek Blu-ray that Pamela herself put out, um, definitely do so because it does restore the uh, full scope framing. Um, for the longest time watching the movie, you had to settle for, you know, heavily cropped uh, prints that just looked like garbage. You know, a lot of VHS masters or 16 millimeter prints. So, yeah, it's great to actually have the full scope framing. Uh, put back in place so you can actually see the entire image. So yeah, uh, I'm sure she talks about that in her segment. But I just yeah. want to reiterate. Damn it! Anyway, not to <laughs> interrupt. Go ahead. Movie well, number two. Movie number two, and
1: this one's a personal favorite of mine. I think it's a personal favorite of yours. Is it a well, personal?
4: F- I, I was going to say I, 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 I included on in my top five list, so I would say yes, it's a uh, personal favorite.
1: <laughs> and Nick, I believe it's a personal favorite of yours as well. This. Uh- no it's not oh my god
4: you guys are going in all the wrong order
1: oh we usually go in chronological then which one are you going
4: no first? look i put these in numerical order pal these are, are these are ranked in order of favorite so, <laughs> so you need lovely. you need so you need to edit out all the stuff of you giving away my number one title <laughs> <laughs> ah fucking all right which let me look at your order again all right. That, well, I I didn't. I don't know if I sent them to you in order. I didn't know that that was a thing.
1: <laughs> I just
4: put them in chronological. So oh. I don't know. So anyway,
1: oh. forget all that. Yes, Bruce. What's your number two or number one or what number? Number is this number four.
4: Number four. Number,
1: number four. Bigfoot movie. What's your number four?
4: Number four would be Emmett Alston's Demon Warp from
1: 1988. Now, for those of you who might recognize Emmett alston's name he was the director of new year's evil as well as the original director of x-ray before being fired
4: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he he did a couple things for crown international uh three day pass nine deaths of the ninja um he also did a a three ninjas ripoff uh called three little ninjas yeah Uh, you know how they
1: ride those coattails he did a few ninja movies that that he did Mm -hmm. something called force of the ninja it's like it seems like yeah bigfoot ninjas (laughs) and a sexploitation movie
4: I mean, what else do you need, right? Really? (laughs) (laughs) So Demon Warp tells the tale of a a car full of college kids who head to a getaway cabin deep in the California woods. Uh, They're lured there under the guise of a wild weekend. But in actuality, one of them has plans to investigate a rash of mysterious occurrences that his uncle, the owner of the property, has reported to him. Uh, One such occurrence being the Sasquatch attack of name star George Kennedy following a thrilling on-screen game of trivial pursuit. Uh, resulting in the death of his daughter and the theft of her body. Uh, The college kids pretty much immediately come face-to-face with Bigfoot, who breaks down the door and rampages like a proper monster, uh, snapping a neck, kidnapping one of the friends, and apparently stealing a car engine. Uh, The surviving kids realize they'll have to hike through the wilderness if they want to make it home alive, uh, but they really have no idea what they're up against. And, oh yeah, about an hour in, uh, zombies show up. How's this your number four then? (laughs) Right. So I I really like this one because it's it's just so goddamn off the wall. The story uh, for the film was actually by effects legend, John Carl Beekler, And it's just full of odd plot tangents and a a completely what the fuck climax uh, involving like a heart ripping cultist and a Muppet alien. And along the way, I mean, there's a head ripped off, a, a tree branch impaling. Uh, one guy gives a bunch of bad Jack Nicholson impressions. There's a few surprising deaths and like just a whole bunch of nudity. One of the zombies wears a residence shirt. Uh, Michelle Bauer shows up looking for a pot farm and immediately takes her shirt off for like no reason. So, yeah, it's just it's really a lot of fun. It's one of those kind of 80s uh kitchen sink monster movies where anything goes.
2: I say it basically takes place in the Bridgewater Triangle, if you've heard of that, just like (laughs) you know, every every type of uh of occurrence happens there you know right. UFOs Bigfoot quicksand exactly. <laughs> all, all the all the 80s tropes
1: <laughs> the, the one thing I was going to say is that I've seen a lot of people talk about this online be like I want a blu-ray of this and I think it's a Lionsgate title isn't
4: it yeah yeah so so the movie was actually uh it was the inaugural production for uh Richard Albert who was a, a Hollywood a, uh, advertising exec, you know, for the major studios. And Mark Amin, who was actually one of the founders of Vidmark, which was the uh, VHS company that put the movie out. So it was actually produced by Vidmark, um, who eventually became TriStar. And I think, we're, I guess, were uh, eaten up by artisan that was eventually went to... Hey, I'm going to correct League. you real
1: quick, because you okay. said
4: TriStar instead of TriMark. Whatever <laughs> you're correct. Yes. So by all accounts, it should be in with Lionsgate. I mean, it's, you know, the lineage is it's, it's not even really much to guess at. It should be 100% with Lionsgate, you know, Mark, Amin, mean, uh, you know, from Trimark, he went from doing this to, you know, working on the Leprechaun series and pretty much everything. Trimark was involved in for like the next decade up to the point of uh, Frida, with um Salma Hayek so I mean he kind of ran you know from starting from Demon Warp all the way up to you know the multiple award-winning Frida is, is a pretty lengthy uh, career run
1: it's the only way to do a career really you know right. st- start with a fucking batshit Bigfoot movie and then go
4: Oscar goal <laughs> right um and obviously you know John Carl Beekler. uh by this time he was already you know a really established effects guy you know working on a bunch of empire picture stuff and plus he had already directed like Troll and Cellar Dweller by then. Um, and the same year this was being made, he was directing Friday 13th part seven. So, you know, obviously that was the reason why, you know, he wasn't directing this one himself per se. Yeah, I have a feeling he would have rather directed this one at the end of the day after his experience <laughs> on that one. Yeah. You might be right. You might, you might be right. The only other name that really popped out from this movie, uh, is probably, uh, Billy Jacoby. Uh, who sort of plays the the comedy sidekick character in this. But he was actually one, he was like the little kid in X-Ray. Um, and then like he was uh, in Bloody Birthday, he was in The Burbs, just one of the guys. So, I mean, he had a pretty decent run, but the rest of them, I, I didn't, nobody else I recognized immediately offhand. I mean, I guess I could have really sleuthed it on the IMDb to see if I missed somebody, but that was really about it.
1: I mean, they had to give most of the money to George Kennedy anyway.
4: Right. But yeah, I mean, to me, this would be Perfect for inclusion in Lionsgate's Vestron line. And really, John Carl Beekler made a follow up to this. I mean, not a sequel, but like a, a a movie that wasn't made long after this that was also produced um by Mark Amin called uh, The Sleeping Car, where David Naughton rents out. Uh, he's like, David Naughton is like going back to school after a divorce or something. So he rents out this haunted locomotive caboose. <laughs> That's like in somebody's backyard and like it, the caboose kills everybody. Like it's putting like bed springs through people and like folding them up in the, in the, in the bed. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, it's, it's surprisingly really good. Uh, it has a, a really witty script, some cool effects. Uh, David Naughton's always great. You know, I mean, ever since American Warcraft in London, I've loved him. So, but yeah, that'd be another great Vestron title too. I mean, I assume uh, if it was also produced by Mean uh, that that would also be part of the Lionsgate library for now so let, let's start lobbying for uh vestron blu-rays of demon warp and the sleeping car
1: the only reason i bring it up is because i know vestron still pops things out at a much mm-hmm. slower rate so i right. like i mean i'd like to see him pick it up and pick up some of the weirder stuff because i know they got some of the ilsa movies and i think they yeah do- yeah
4: i don't know what the trouble are is with those um i mean other than the fact that they're probably too extreme for Lionsgate, they don't necessarily tarnish their image i guess with some of those Cinepix like sleaze movies but yeah i mean they do have some stuff coming out i mean they're finally doing sundown a vampire retreat uh which is a pretty fun one they're doing the wraith um so i mean at least they're doing stuff i guess at some point i would think that they have to do brian Yuzna's uh the dentist movies i mean hd masters exist for those so i would think that they'd be you know coming down the pipe at some point
1: i also know i think they got um silent night deadly night three through five
4: as well yeah uh, i'd love to see i'd love to see those as a, a series i mean they're not the greatest movies but i'd buy the shit out of it you know
1: i i, I know there's at least hd masters of like four and five mm-hmm. floating out there i think they're um, open mat, but is five is five the toy maker five's the toy maker with mickey rooney who went full circle after like trying to get the first <laughs> one banned. starring <laughs> <in part>
4: five, <laughs> i remember seeing that on cable and just be like what the fuck is this like the scene where the 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 doll boy pulls down his pants and he has like the uh, uh just a, a plastic flat crotch <laughs> hopefully i'm not confusing that with another movie but i'm pretty sure it's the toy maker <laughs> and then four four was the brian used one with like the bugs right like the initiation it was like the the weird like insect people cult thing
1: with um, uh clint howard it was um picked up the um what's his name role the 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 only carry through from like all four (laughs) movies or the first four movies and using the produce part five and like had mickey rooney was doing press for five which is just incredible that mickey rooney's like i'm in this movie called silent night deadly light night five the toy (laughs) maker so just to kind of get back to bigfoot how would you recommend on a scale of one to ten on a bigfoot scale like how impactful is the actual
4: bigfoot footage in this one it, the it's weird it's one of those movies where everything kind of feels like a tangent <laughs> like like the through line of the plot starts where bigfoot's pretty important but by the last half hour it goes off in so many different directions that bigfoot's almost irrelevant um and i mean i don't want to give too much away in case you know somebody does want to watch it like i said it's unfortunately it's it's a vhs holdout for now um, it's never been on dvd uh as far as i know i didn't feel like digging out my tape so i actually watched it on youtube uh to prepare for this which is something i'm like morally opposed to but whatever sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do look man if Lionsgate would put it
1: out on blu-ray there we go would, there we go but we're gonna take a quick commercial break but we return more holocheck more bigfoot on the cinematic void podcast <laughs>
3: I really believe there's a creature. Hmm.
0: Yep, I do. from black lake is coming to a theater near you a jim mccullough production rated pg
1: welcome back we've been talking about bigfoot with bruce holacek of cinema arcana i said it right i said it right (laughs) god damn it after 25 years i have to learn your fucking name again man right right
4: i like to keep you on your toes
1: yeah, you always do. So, this coming up here is the number three Bigfoot movie out of your number
4: top five. three. Ooh, so what is it, Bruce? Well, it's a because This is not a horror movie. This is indeed Fred Wolf's Strange Wilderness from 2008. Now, Fred yeah. Wolf was a longtime SNL writer, right? He was. He was. He was, he was the head writer uh, on SNL for. Through most of the 90s, I think, from like 91, to 97. Uh, and he did almost 100 episodes of it. That's a, that's a lot of comedy. So
1: I guess why don't you enlighten us about Strange Wilderness?
4: I can do that. Now, you guys have both seen this movie, I assume? I've seen yeah. it. Perfect. Well, for those of you who haven't, Strange Wilderness follows Steve Zahn as the son of a famous nature documentarian who's finding it difficult to keep the show afloat following his father's passing. Uh, he's given an ultimatum by the network head that he needs a ratings knockout or else it's cancellation time. So he does what anybody would do, and that is to buy a map to Bigfoot's hideout in Ecuador from Joe Don Baker, uh, Buford Puster himself, and assemble a crew to go film the fucker. Uh, and of course, they'll be making several episodes along the way, showcasing whatever wildlife they come across sometimes, literally. The problem is rival show host Harry Hamlin is after the same scoop and has a several day head start, meaning the team really has to pull together. if. Uh, they want to get there first. So in, in the 80s, you know, besides the, uh, you know, watching all these crazy supernatural shows and mystery shows, I was also a big fan of nature shows, you know, stuff like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom or Lauren Green's New Wilderness, um, or even, you know, I guess for the younger crowd watching this, you know, Croc Hunter, you know, that that sort of shit but if you, if you're a fan of that sort of genre, there's really a lot to like in that in, in this movie. It's at once kind of an affectionate tribute to the genre, as well as a uh, ridiculously profane updating the intermittent show clips with heavily researched facts, like monkeys make up over 80% of the world's monkey population. Uh, and sharks are the assholes of the sea are really a lot of fun. And the, you know, the, the bit with them, uh, with this dopey shark with, a uh, oversized teeth and them just giving it a completely ridiculous stupid laugh uh just had me in tears i mean it's the it's the kind of movie that makes you feel high even if you're not high uh which is always a good thing um the the bit where steve zahn gets his dick stuck in the turkey's throat is just an absolute classic um you know they, they have a nurse trying to massage it off of his off of his cock uh and, and justin long tells her to uh, cup the beak uh, and then there, there's this bit with uh, uh, Robert Patrick uh, telling this Amazon pygmy story that's just absolutely hilarious. phone gag. And then, of course, the, the final revealed fate of Bigfoot. Yeah, it, it's just really, really funny. Um, plus, you know, when, when we saw it in theaters, I know during the break we were trying to remember if me and you saw it together or not. Um, I definitely remember uh, our buddy the puke was there. But it also works in footage from Faces of Death into its narrative. Uh and the idea of seeing footage of faces of death screened in a mainstream comedy at your local multiplex is just hilariously subversive. So yeah, yeah. And the other, you know, also interestingly, uh having you know, in in prep for this podcast, having watched both uh this and Demon Warp back to back, Bigfoot's lair is the exact same Bronson Canyon location in both fucking movies. So yeah, that was amazing to me. You know, Bronson Canyon
1: puts in work. It's the back cave. <laughs> it's like countless like exploitation movies. It's yeah, it's a good location. Right. Uh, Nick and I for our current band project actually shot a did a photo shoot there too.
4: <laughs> no bigfoots though. Right. So yeah, the movie was produced by Happy Madison, which is Adam Sandler's company. Um, so it, it shares a lot of the cast with Adam Sandler movies. But it also has roles for like Justin Long and Jonah Hill, a real early role for him. Ernest Borgnine shows up, uh, Kevin Heffernan from the Broken Lizard movies. And I always thought it was kind of funny that, you know, the two best Happy Madison comedies, this and Grandma's Boy, uh, don't feature Adam Sandler at all. So I don't know if that's, you know, telling us something or what. (laughs) I mean,
1: it's telling Adam Sandler something.
4: (laughs) But yeah, unfortunately for Fred Wolf, uh, the movie kind of flopped. Uh, they spent like twenty million on it and it only made seven million. Um, so his career didn't really take off uh, as far as directing goes. Uh, I mean, he did direct Joe Dirt 2, If that's your your cup of tea, uh, not so much mine. But yeah, this, this film I think is is just genius. It's it's so goddamn funny. I mean, I think comedies are really missing that sort of silly zaniness uh that this movie kind of encapsulates i mean what was like the last comedy that you saw that really cracked you up
1: i think the movies that crack me up the most probably aren't intentional comedies anymore
4: (laughs) the last one i can remember that like a recent comedy that really fucking had me howling was a game night with uh jason bateman and rachel mcadams like if you haven't seen that i mean there's so many good gags in that uh yeah, it's really 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 funny I'm trying to think the last like i know
1: overt comedy was barb and star go to vista del mar which i enjoyed but i also felt like some of those jokes didn't hit it was you know it's <laughs> typical like snl thing where like there's really good jokes and then there's just like things that just fall flat it wasn't right. as good as bridesmaid or anything like that right but yeah it's like i think you're right it's just people aren't really going in for like silly comedies and mm-hmm. It's it's a weird movie because I remember the ad campaign for this, and I think they didn't really sell it very well. At least from the trailers, obviously they had the shark bit in there, which was like right. hilarious. Hilarious, but like I don't know if it sold the movie to, like the general. <laughs> right, owners.
4: right. Yeah, I was gonna say there's probably only a few of us that would find that hilarious, but I mean it worked for me. You know, it got me, it got my ass in the theater. So
1: it's also that weird era where Steve Zahn was getting like big roles. I guess it was after um out of sight, where like he kind of had his little breakthrough of playing like. The Stoner guy, and then like right. parlayed that to play the the stoner guy and a lot
4: of other things. Wasn't wasn't he in that uh he was in that other horror thing too that actually was really good uh with the trucker, Rusty Nail. What the hell was that called? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is that called? No, where <laughs> they, they have the trucker on the CB. You know what I'm talking about, right? And like his handle's Rusty Nail but then he starts stalking them isn't it like lily sobieski and is it like paul is walker Joy, or something is it joyride yes joyride yeah, yeah who's, it, it who's in joyride was it paul walker Am it was I paul that up?
1: i think it is paul walker
4: what's cheap paul walker Where... steve's on and 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 lily sobieski that's what i'm going with but i'm yeah. looking this up because now i'm uh, i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to be wrong on the uh, internet
5: pretty good oh di- right?
4: direct, directed by john Dahl, uh who did like the last Seduction and stuff red rock west yeah. So actually I didn't realize that was from him. So no wonder it was actually good. That movie actually, it's funny because not to go off on the tangent, but Joyride, like the Joyride DVD actually had like an alternate ending, like the original ending, how they filmed it. And it's actually kind of like an interesting story in how you fix a movie because the theatrical ending ended up being so much better than the original ending, but they have the original one there for you to see as well. How, like how they first set it up and then they're like oh well, this doesn't really work so then they went back and retooled it and it's so much better
1: I mean that's not really a common thing that happens for like home video releases movies because most time you get to see the, the director's cut ending or whatever right, and right. like it's like they fucked up my movie it's, it's very rare that you have a film that's like here's the original ending that didn't work and we changed it and we made it better right exactly on a scale of one to ten
4: how big footy is this movie really though um like bigfoot's in the movie for like probably uh 45 seconds <laughs> it's but it's the point of the movie is bigfoot
1: <laughs> i mean that, that that's what all those like shows are about and that's really what a lot of bigfoot
4: movies are about is people trying to find the fucking thing right exactly uh and sometimes you have to look in ecuador apparently <laughs>
1: <laughs> the most fun bigfoot place to go. <laughs>
4: like i i feel like the script writing meeting they're just like they thought that was funny so they put it in and that's kind of like what this movie feels like is like just stuff they thought was funny so they just decided to put it in the movie
1: if you're from ecuador let us know on social media if you've seen a bigfoot there i'm, I'm just kind of <laughs> curious if like that was really a thing because like you know obviously there's a lot of southern Bigfoots and then like Pacific Northwest Bigfoots, and then you have Yetis and things like that.
4: Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. I mean, it's you know, Florida's got the skunk ape, and Australia's got the Yowie and uh, uh there's the Yeti and right Tibet, like the Himalayas. But yeah, I, I don't know if we have a Maryland Bigfoot or not. I don't know if there's ever been a Maryland uh Bigfoot sighting, honestly.
1: No, I, we I, I was gonna say we had our own Loch Ness Monster knockoff, <laughs> right?
4: Chessie. Chessie? Yeah. yes
1: well if you're from the baltimore area you'll get some of these references
4: if you're not you're just shit out of luck but right or should we have started this with a whole crew member? fucking captain chesapeake
1: ah <laughs> 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 oh, man th- this is bringing back the memories but you there, there we go it's all about this is about reminiscing and a lot of stuff it's about big <laughs> it's about bigfoot but it's about the good days
4: right 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 the bigfoot pre- makes you think Bigfoot makes you think about the good old days.
1: Yeah. When it was just like, you just, you know, eat a bag of Doritos and then get diarrhea and then stay home <laughs> from school and watch Beetlejuice or something. There you go. Exactly. Are,
4: so, are, you, are you, are you, are you telling us, is this your memory? Is this your personal memory here?
1: <laughs> yeah, man, this is, it's all coming back.
4: <laughs> I've never it, felt closer.
1: I know, man. I just feel like we're bonding right now. Like we haven't in the last
4: 25 years. <laughs>
1: Uh, so before we move on from strange wilderness um anything else you want to throw in about it bruce
4: no well
1: that's pretty (laughs) that's that's to the point we're gonna take a. we're gonna take another commercial break here but we're gonna return more bigfoot or bruce holichek on the cinematic void podcast
0: the sight of it will live with you or die with you but you will never forget the shriek of the mutilated The Abominable Snowman, the Yeti, or is it? A scientific expedition that turns into a nightmare for all but a few, with the surprise ending of the year. Sometimes it almost sounds like something human. Have you seen it? You don't really believe we're gonna find anything out there. Dr. Prell thinks we might. Oh, Prell's got a thing about snowmen. The trouble is, that people believe that garbage his can get themselves in trouble. It's the damnedest thing, Ernst. If it isn't a Yeti, I can't imagine what it could be. I could see it as it was chewing the flesh of Tom's leg. Honey? Stop treating me like a child! Oh. stop acting like one? Dr. Proud brought you on this mission for a reason. Oh. This is not for the weak. Oh. This is truly the shriek of the mutilated.
1: Welcome back. We've been Squatch hunting with Bruce Holacek here on the Cinematic Boy podcast. And up next is his number two Bigfoot movie. And Bruce, why don't you enlighten us to what that is?
4: That would be Ryan Schifrin's 2006 movie, Abominable. uh, Which I think I saw for the first time with you, I believe. Yeah, we did Uh, watch it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when the Anchor Bay DVD came out. Uh, But we'll get into that in a little bit. If you haven't seen Abominable, basically the movie starts, we're introduced to a wheelchair-bound man and his kind of a dick male nurse. And they're heading back to a cottage in the woods where we eventually find out that the man previously lived with his wife before she died in a tragic rock climbing accident that also left him paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, It's worth noting the cliff they were climbing is actually nicknamed Suicide Rock, Uh, so one might think they actually got what they deserved, but whatever. Enter a jeep load of hot chicks partying next door for a bachelorette weekend, um, who soon find themselves hunted by a giant hairy beast. Uh, The man spies all of this happening through his ever-present binoculars, but can he get anyone to believe him before it's too late? So there was this period around 2005 or so where Anchor Bay started moving from the vintage horror titles that were really their bread and butter for, you know, the the five years or so before that to incorporating some more recent uh, direct-to-video fare. And while a lot of them were not so great, uh, I'm looking specifically at Day of the Dead 2 Contagium, uh, which is one of the worst goddamn things I've ever seen in my life. But there were a few solid surprises and, you know, abominable was was one of them was one of the best another good one was actually do, do you remember uh this thing we saw called dead and breakfast yeah um so we actually saw dead and breakfast we drove down to north carolina uh to meet up with with leaf yonker uh to film some supplements for for darkness uh back when his vampire you know diy vampire gore fest darkness was um in production for uh barrel entertainment for the double disc dvd release so we drove down because he had you know, was screening his new and improved quote unquote, uh, director's cut, um, or the vampire version or whatever the hell it's called, uh, at this film festival in North Carolina. But there was this massive, massive ice storm that weekend. Uh, so like nobody showed up. So basically we were just trapped in this hotel, like as they were screening movies with like 10 people there. Um, who would come in for this film festival? Because nobody else could actually make it there because the ice was so bad. I mean, we were literally sliding down the sidewalks. Also, while we were while we were uh, in North Carolina, uh, just for your knowledge, Nick, um, Jim said the funniest thing that we've ever heard Jim say in his entire life. <laughs> okay. So we were up we were up late <laughs> watching the, we were up late watching the news one night, and the weatherman on the news who was talking about this ice storm, like. We thought he fucking looked like Frank Stallone. So Jim, just out of nowhere, is just like, this weather's breaking my balls. Uh and for some reason, <laughs> me and DeHaven thought that was like possibly the funniest thing Jim's ever said in his entire life.
1: It really it really is. And I think I think we we're just out of our mind because I remember that trip down there where you got like this hilarious speeding ticket in Virginia, <laughs> which is the worst place you can get a speeding right. ticket. Yeah, like well, that was bad. When that cop pulled us over, his hand was on the gun.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
1: he's like I, th- I think you asked him how close are are we to the north carolina border he's like you'll uh, get there if you go to the speed limit or
4: something like that <laughs> yeah it was like yeah because in virginia it's like anything over 85 is like automatically reckless driving uh so, right, i had to like hire a lawyer from another state to represent me and all sorts of shit uh to try to get the reckless driving charge pulled from my uh license um for the record, that's not the first time that happened either. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. I mean that that uh, was a that was a weird weekend of
1: whatever because I think it was you, me, the Haven, this guy Aaron Curtis that you yeah, work I was on. Yeah, because it's
4: Aaron Curtis. Uh, he he's worked on some like real movies and shit, hasn't he? Since he like, worked he worked like, on recently?
1: how... He worked on House of Cards. I think he moved to North Carolina or Georgia. I think it's Georgia because mm-hmm. that's where a big bunch of film production. So he does um, grip and electric work now. So he's gotcha. staying busy. Good, good. He's come a long way from fucking running mini, mini DV tapes at a fucking screening of Leaf Yonkers Darkness. <laughs> right,
4: right. Standing <laughs> up in the corner of an underattended theater uh, due to an ice storm. Uh, leaf leaf still gets in touch with me he wants like copies of those tapes uh, and i've tried to explain to him that in order to get those tapes i would have to go to your parents house without you there and like hug your mom and shit uh (laughs) and i just don't feel like doing all that uh so yeah some at some point when you're back in maryland you need to find those darkness tapes for leaf
1: they should be in the drawer with all the other weird featurettes we did i guess
4: (laughs) the problem is i don't know if any of that stuff is labeled properly and i have no idea how to like I, i wouldn't even know how to watch those things to see what's on them, you know.
1: I mean, I remember we had those cheap Sony MD or mini DV tapes, which were the worst ones. We didn't <laughs> we didn't know at the time, but they had this problem with glitching. And I think I remember we were watching footage and there's like glitches and like all that kind of shit on there. Oh that's funny. I don't I mean I know he's I think Arrow's pointing it out. I yeah, guess he's yeah he, is he doing a third version of darkness at
4: this point? He is he is <laughs> um he's he's doing I guess what he's calling like the final version now where I think he's putting back in some of the music that you know he replaced for the vampire version uh and then i don't know what else he's doing but he he wanted to uh, incorporate some of our stuff in the documentary kind of like make an extended version of the documentary which we were going to do like i had this idea that i wanted to do like this sort of um like where are they now featurette uh and like you know all the stuff we filmed with leaf at the convention you know take some of that stuff with him and then also talk to people like scooter mccray and howard Berger, and like some of those guys that had made some of these independent films in the 90s and like just talk about you know the trials they had and you know the success they had with those movies and how hard it was to get another one made and things like that Uh, it could have made for a pretty cool piece but uh yeah another one that just kind of floated away
1: (laughs) (laughs) on the same raft with raft squad. Yeah, exactly. Waving by, but (laughs) I guess we, I don't know if you plan to sidetrack it at this point, but we should talk about Bruce and I used to do DVD. I guess, I guess some of them had ported over to Blu-ray, but we did, we made some featurettes Mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah, Yeah. I remember we did the one for extra, which was a lot of fun. And that one was easy.
4: Yeah. Yeah. More than more easy than some of them. It took us a little bit to kind of find our voice. (laughs) <laughs> uh with these things most of the time we were just in there i mean because we were both working all day long and then we'd come and well like we'd be all slap happy by the time we started like each night working on editing these featurettes uh and basically we just started doing stuff that would make us laugh so like they i, I like to feel they're a little bit uh rough around the edges but i like to think they had personality the the
1: one the one i always have the most it's 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 a weird memory because it's a funny memory looking back at the mm-hmm. time. It was a fucking nightmare because we stayed up for like 24 hours to finish this <laughs> damn thing. It was um we did two featurettes for Caligula. Right. It came in. We did the John Steiner one, we did the Lori Wagner one and like yeah. For some reason, we kept slacking on the Lori Wagner one because uh, she gave <laughs> she gave us that CD that she had put out of like sex songs right. or whatever it was called.
4: Well, and, and our- if you if you remember that Lori Wagner one in the middle of the interview tape, we lost like twenty minutes of interview because the, like the gardener hooked into. <laughs> do you remember that? Like, yes. The gardener hooked into the outlet or something, and it completely fried all the sound to the tape. So like the gardener goes by, he's like trimming some hedges or something, and like the sound is completely wrecked on the vi- on the tape for like twenty minutes. Uh, So we lost like a giant chunk in the middle. And then she did like a wardrobe change in the middle. So we had like, so she was like in two different outfits during the thing. It was so weird
1: i just remember like and then my system started crashing at that point i just remember Mm -hmm. one one point probably like 5 a.m when i knew i had to go to work it's be there at six i'm just like throwing the fucking computer chair around. right yeah yeah like we were
4: trying to render something and it like froze or locked up or something yeah you just had like a fucking meltdown it was funny because right we'd work on these featurettes and we'd like every single night we just be dealing with each other and like trying to meet some of these deadlines that and we never had like enough time like no matter what it was always like oh we need this on like thursday like jesus christ but yeah so like we wouldn't talk to each other for like two weeks afterwards and then we would like finally decided it was safe to hang out again I mean, it, they were fun
1: times i think it would always be like we would we always work where we had like a real pace and then like it's like well they want it tomorrow <laughs> right <laughs> Which I think happened on every one of them after after the extra one. We did the "Don't Answer Phone," which is probably got the the longest legs out of them all. I would say.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's been on like four or five releases now.
1: A Nicholas Worth interview is uh, worth it. Damn it!
4: I know. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I, I guess the the fact that he died probably helped us. <laughs> but <laughs> but that, he was the coolest dude. He was he was really nice. And I, yeah, it's it's totally a bummer. I I I found out he it was like my birthday actually when my buddy art edinger called me i was like oh man you know i just heard nicholas worth died uh and i was really bummed because like you know he was like living in like an old folks home uh at the time uh so like we had to go pick him up and like take him to the studio and stuff and you know we did the interview with him and then like he didn't have a dvd player and he didn't have a computer uh so he just didn't know so i would call him like after the dvd came out and like read him the reviews uh Uh, from like internet sites and stuff just so he could you know listen to him and he was like so grateful and he was so happy that people like remembered him and for like you know liked his performance and stuff like that uh i wish do you still have like the uh (laughs) so when we edited the featurette like for some reason he kept bringing up god uh, because he's like a born-again christian so we cut all that stuff out but jim put together like this uh jesus montage of nicholas worth like every time he brought up god or jesus while well, he's talking about this movie where like he's strangling naked women <laughs> and like he's like thanking god <laughs> it's it's
1: probably still in my war computer down the basement
4: oh, oh my god that was so funny i remember just watching you i remember you show i just came over one day you showed that to me that just it was fucking i just fell out it was so good <sighs> That, yeah, hopefully, we, I, hopefully you still have that somewhere. We, we we should have
1: sent that to Joe and put it on the Vinter. Yeah, <laughs> so. seriously,
4: that would have been like the greatest, the greatest Easter egg on that vinegar on oh. Blu-ray.
1: I remember you used to have that voicemail from him for years, where he's like,
4: "Bruce, I know, I deleted <laughs> it. Oh, I accidentally fucking erased it."
1: I, I remember it was like, "Bruce, it's me, Nicholas Worth. I don't look like how I used to look
4: like, or something like that." Yeah, so. he's, <laughs> like, I, he's like, he's like, "Bruce, this is Nicholas Worth." I was thinking about the interview and I'm old now. So that? if you think that's going to be a problem, let me know. <laughs> They're just like, we know you're old now. <laughs> like, that's not a surprise. <sighs> so but yeah, he was the best. Uh, he popped up in something that me and Dave and watched the other night. Oh, fuck, <clears throat> what was it? Um, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh <laughs> i was gonna look it up but who cares uh but no he's always great he's always it's always fun to see him pop up in something and yeah it's totally a bummer that uh he's not around anymore
1: but that movie will live on and it's funny now because at the time when that first dvd came out it wasn't really on a lot of people's radar but like since then a lot
4: of people know don't answer the phone. Right, it's a good one. It's a good movie. Uh, You know, I probably count it still in my top ten vinegar syndrome releases, Uh, and I I definitely still count it in my top twenty slasher movies too. Uh, Even though some might argue it's not a slasher movie, but whatever, it's It's a slasher. Right,
1: it's also a nice like sleazy Hollywood movie. You get a nice shot of the Alien premiere at the Egyptian Theater in it.
4: (laughs) I don't remember that. That's awesome
1: i've every time like it gets around the we've talked about egyptian theater stuff i always pull up that clip because it's a clearly a shot where they're like in a car driving by stealing shots and it's just like <laughs> egyptian theater with the
4: alien like marquee and like a line around the block so you know what's funny is not that long ago i re-watched uh death wish 2 and the movie almost feels like a complete spiritual like sequel like they exist in like the same universe because the cop the main cop is played by the same actor um it has like this really sleazy score and it's totally like a gritty like dirty la story uh so like with all those elements together like you could i feel like you could merge those two movies together make it like one long detective story with like two parallel things uh but yeah it's it, it it was really interesting to me how close they kind of resembled each other uh watching death wish 2 again not that long ago i mean just imagine a movie where charles bronson
1: is hunting after Nicholas Wirth.
4: Jesus Christ, wouldn't that be amazing?
1: <laughs> well, we, I have an editing system who says we can't make it now. <laughs> there you go. But I guess back to Abominable, which... Um, we
4: so yeah, so back, back to Abominable. <laughs> um, so, I mean, Abominable, I mean, it's basically, as if, you, in case you remember the plot synopses from 45 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> Abominable, I mean, it's be, you know admitted, the, the directors admitted that it's basically rear window with a big foot, but it really has a lot of fun with the concept. Um, The monster itself is like really kind of funky looking, like it looks like kind of like a deranged homeless person, but it's huge. Like it's really like bulky and it just towers over the actors uh, and it gives it like more of a feel than just like a dude in a suit. Plus, the 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 film doesn't really hide the kills, uh, which is a major plus. So it has the creature like ripping out throats and biting off faces and stomping people's guts out. Um, and plus, you get a supporting cast full of genre vets like Jeffrey Combs, Lance Henriksen, D. Wallace Stone. Um, and one of the girls next door is is played by Tiffany Shepes, and uh, she's always welcome. I always like her. So director Ryan Shiffrin is actually the son of legendary composer uh, Lalo Shifrin, who did everything from the Mission Impossible theme song to Dirty Harry and Enter the Dragon, Cool Hand Luke, Amityville Horror. I was going to um, say,
1: this is our second tie to Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry with Bigfoot movies, because Charles B. Pierce was one of the writers on Sudden Impact.
4: Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, good call. But yeah, for some reason, you know, uh, like I, I thought Ryan, when this movie came out, you know, Ryan Schiffrin was kind of part of that whole like new millennium horror crew with like Adam green with hatchet and Joe Lynch with like wrong turn two and Mike Mendez, Eli Roth, Neil Marshall, you know, all those guys were sort of coming out with these pretty cool movies around the same time. But unfortunately for some reason, Ryan Schiffrin, I like, I'm not sure what the story is, but he never was able to get a second feature going. You know, I don't know if that was something he tried to pursue and just wasn't able to get it um he did some shorts and he did one of the segments for that uh tales of halloween anthology that came out a few years ago mm-hmm. um which was a movie i thought was pretty cool um but yeah i was really kind of bummed that he's never quite gotten around to doing another feature because based off abominable it seems like you know he can put together a, a pretty fun uh monster movie i mean when you have i mean when you basically
1: take rear window and put a Bigfoot in it it's just imagine jimmy <laughs> stewart going against a Bigfoot. <laughs>
4: Ah, those are some big feet. <laughs> <laughs>
3: that was it. Did, I, did I nail it? Is that, is that what Jimmy
4: Stewart would sound like uh, in a Bigfoot movie? I'm gonna have to say no, but <laughs> oh, at least I tried.
1: Yeah, it's better than what I could do. So <laughs> I don't know. Nick, can you do a Jimmy Stewart? I've got no Jimmy Stewart for you. No. <laughs> I'm not I've never been that.
2: good at never been good at impressions. Well, neither have I, but
1: <laughs> that it's nah, nah, not worse.
2: Not right. known for my impressions.
1: All right. If, if you do one, Nick, I will do a Jimmy Stewart as well.
2: Yeah, that's a fucking Bigfoot.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, uh, that might have been worse than mine.
2: <laughs> cool. <laughs> See? <laughs> to- told you. <laughs> i don't know how i can follow that <laughs> all right that's all. Like, hey that's a big friend <laughs> over there huh <laughs> he's edward g robinson <laughs> <laughs> i'm doing david
4: lynch meets you'll never you'll never, <laughs> g- you'll never make me alive <laughs> bigfoot <Nah>. hey see
1: <laughs> what, what, what i see here is a is bigfoot <laughs> <laughs>
4: that wasn't bad that wasn't bad
1: well, I, I that's about all I could
4: do if I would be. There we that. go. There we go.
1: It'd be like, <laughs> yeah, see, it's big fun. <laughs> 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 so somehow we evoked Jimmy Stewart impersonations, talked like 40 minutes about us making DVD feature ads. <laughs> <laughs> i think you bought a bomb i mean we used to make
4: our best buy runs like every tuesday <laughs> and grab you know whatever came out uh, and that was one of the ones we were like well fuck it's a bigfoot movie like maybe who knows maybe this will be a good one uh because at the time i mean there wasn't re- there it had been a minute since there had been like a really quality bigfoot movie so yeah i think we just rolled the dice on it and yeah it turned out to be a, a surprisingly decent watch
1: oh uh, i know we're going to go off topic here but okay let's let's talk about Best buy and how it used to be the best place to buy movies and now is the probably the
4: worst place to buy movies. Yeah, I haven't even been in one in probably like two years. But yeah, I mean there was a period there where I mean there was so much stuff coming out. Uh and it was literally every week, you know, you had to Best Buy to see what new image DVDs were there, especially Anchor Bay stuff. You know, their shelves always had the newest Anchor Bay things. Um weirdly, I can remember (laughs) I can remember. Well, nine eleven, getting out of work early because I don't know something was going on, and like speeding to try to get to Best Buy, hoping that they'd still be open on nine eleven because Opera and Suspiria were coming out that day, and like they had, I had already gotten Suspiria because they had that out early, Uh, but they, I didn't get Opera because they hadn't had that yet, Uh, but unfortunately when I got to Best Buy, uh, it was closed.
1: Well, there might have been a good reason.
4: That's my biggest memory of nine eleven. (laughs)
1: <laughs> just going to try to buy anchor edition of <laughs> opera i mean it did come with a cd <laughs> like
4: did or no maybe i have it backwards maybe i bought opera early and like i they only had the single disc of suspiria out early and they didn't have the three disc and i was waiting for the three disc i think that's the actual story it's been yeah. 20 years <laughs> i mean
1: i th- that was the thing about like best buy like they used to actually have a good music selection too like right right you know i oh,
4: yeah
2: best buy was a, a good record store for a while not record not actually records cds but so it's, it's a good store
4: yeah i mean i remember right yeah i used to always pick up uh like the head people have like victory records end caps yeah <laughs> like, right you know, like, i remember crazy. i remember
2: specifically when uh jawbreaker Dear you came out there was a huge deer you display
4: mm-hmm. you know crazy right <laughs> and they weren't expensive like they're always having sale. you could pick up stuff for like 10 bucks a pop and
1: yeah and uh, now if you walk into best buy like i I went to go buy, I had a keyboard stop working, and I was like, Best Buy has to have a keyboard. Right. No! They don't have a fucking <laughs> normal keyboard. It's like, I just want a regular-ass keyboard. They don't fucking have that, so it's like, they have no movies, they have no music, the fuck's the point of Best Buy
4: anymore? Right. Refrigerators and TVs. Best Buy exists for warranty packages. That's like, that's probably their main, like,
1: sale. I was gonna say, I did buy a TV for around Christmas time <clears> myself, <throat> so, I guess they, they have good deals on TVs occasionally, but yeah, that's about it. Not, not like the heyday. So any closing thoughts about Abominable before we move on?
4: Um, no, you tell me,
1: I mean, it's fun. It's gory. If you haven't checked it out, I guess it's, it's stuck on DVD. Like, I Oh guess no, that-
4: no, no. There's a, uh, there's an awesome Blu-ray actually. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, MVD put it out as part of the MVD rewind collection. So yeah, it's, it's funny because they had edited the film on tape because I guess in 2005, they were just like, whatever. But so in order to do this, they had to go back and rescan everything and recut the entire film, you know, using the original cut as a template. So yeah, it's, it, they put a lot of work into actually producing this HD version. Um, and then they had to like fix some CG. So they, you know, tweak things a little bit, um, but it actually, it, it, it looks good. Um, I watched that in prep for this. I bought it when it came out like a few months back. Um, or a year back. I don't know. Time has no fucking meaning. I've been sitting here for 16 months, but no, it's great. It has a bunch of extras. Uh, it has the featurettes, a new introduction where he talks about the process of putting it all back together. It includes the old standard definition version if you're really a purist about that for some reason. But no, it's a nicely loaded special edition Blu-ray uh, and it's readily in print. So definitely, uh, if it sounds like something interesting to you, definitely give it a look. I
1: was about to say, I, I was kind of wondering, like a lot of those Anchor Bay titles that like they put out, like the, the one, the newer movies that they were producing Mm -hmm. at the time, like did they, I guess a lot of them don't have homes. So that's why I thought first of all, but I guess I do remember that MVD did put it out at some point. Yeah,
4: you're right. Like a lot of that stuff is, uh, you know, the vintage titles are obviously mostly with licensors, but a lot of those more recent things that they kind of were the premieres of, yeah, a lot of them, the Anchor Bay DVDs are kind of like all we've seen for them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that this one escaped uh, into HD because it, it was one of the better ones. Now we but, need Dead and Breakfast.
1: Yeah, Dead and Breakfast is a good one. If you haven't checked that out, I guess I don't know if you can still buy Anchor Bay DVDs. Like they're just like stockpiled on like deep discount or like right, Amazon at right. this point. <laughs> I don't know, but that's worth checking out too. But we're going to take another break. And when we return, we're going to have the number one Bigfoot movie, according to Bruce Holachek here on the Cinematic Void podcast
0: monster truck fans this is the video you've been waiting for this is bigfoot king of the monster truck 60 minutes of non-stop monster truck action that will blow you away it's all new brand News. You'll see it all from car-crushing heroics to dangerous monster truck rollovers. Heart-pounding wheel stand. Monster truck drag racing. Music videos in Bigfoot deep in the mud. Witness the first car crush ever and ride in the cab with Bigfoot as he pours on the power plus much, much more. Nothing stops this giant muscle machine as he flies through the air. Jumping cars and smashing everything in his way. This is the video that everyone's talking about. This is the ultimate in monster truck excitement. This is Bigfoot, king of the monster trucks. This offer not available in store, so order yours today, today. Have today. your charge card ready and call now, 1-800-848-9000 to get your copy of Bigfoot, King of the Monster Trucks, for $24.95 plus shipping in handling. Call now and get a Bigfoot cap free. Offer not available in store, so call now,
1: 1-800-848-9000. It's incredible. Welcome back. We've been talking about Bigfoot with Bruce Holacek here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, and up next is his favorite Bigfoot movie, and I'm going to give a little spoiler. It's my favorite Bigfoot movie, too. And I think it's also Nick's. I know we kind of fucked up and revealed it earlier, but that's been leaked (laughs) out. So you don't know what it is. Although if you know any of us, you probably know what it is.
4: Right, or if you have good taste.
1: Yeah, you'll know what it is. So Bruce, tell us, what is your number one
4: Bigfoot movie? Well, the big daddy of Bigfoot movies is indeed James Watson's 1980 feature, Night of the Demon, not to be confused with the earlier British movie of a similar title.
1: Not to be confused with Kevin Tenney's *Night of the Demons*, which has no Bigfoot in it. Right,
4: that movie hasn't held up nearly as well as <laughs> I thought it would. I used to love *Night of the Demons* when you know I was younger and it came out, and but having uh, recently rewatched it, yeah, it just didn't do it for me. It was also at an Exum show, and it was like movie number like ten <laughs> in a series of fourteen, so I might have been a little uh, fatigued at that point. But yeah, it, it didn't seem like it really kind of, uh, moved as much as I wanted it to.
1: It's fair. Sometimes you grow out of movies and sometimes if you watch them at 4 AM, they ain't gonna work no (laughs) matter what. That's why I always appreciated those, like those exhumed, like all nighters we used to go to where they would put the clunk clunker in there. The only problem is like. You couldn't sleep through the clunker because you thought something was going to happen.
4: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny. It's funny you bring that up. Not to go off on another tangent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I saw you watched watch uh, uh, Pupiavati's uh, Zader the other night. Yeah. Um, which is a movie that i stayed away from for like a decade after finding out about its existence um just because all the reviews that i ever read in like deep red and stuff they <laughs> all just said oh you know it's it's a goreless bore and nothing happens so i remember exhume played it at uh the hoyts you know that big multiplex yeah. that they were doing their shows after a while that we used to always go up to on like and how that number one how the hell did we even do that on like friday nights after working all week like, <laughs> Jesus christ now i'm like ready to go to bed by like 10 and was somehow we were staying up to like four in the fucking morning watching italian trash movies but so i remember we went up for an italian horror all-nighter and that was one of the movies that was playing you know under its u.s title of uh revenge of the dead um with a completely inappropriate ad campaign that showed like the zombie crawling out like the sewer grate that nothing like that ever happens in the goddamn movie so i was expecting to fall asleep to it because everything i had heard about it said it sucked and oh it's just boring and blah 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 so i'm like well you know i'll fall asleep for that and i'll wake back up for whatever the fifth movie was like burial ground it was burial ground yeah okay
1: because i've talked a lot about the screening because like that was the setup yeah because like at that point we're just watching it like really sleep deprived at that point and Mm -hmm. just like i want to sleep but i feel like something's going to happen in this movie
4: (laughs) well yeah and that was the cool thing like right like first the score was fantastic uh which i wasn't expecting and then i really got wrapped up into the plot and then as i'm sitting there watching i'm just like this is actually a really good movie i don't know why i waited so long to watch this but the, really, that really was the perfect way to see it for the first time was on 35 millimeter you know at a theater in the middle of the night yeah i thought it was really effective really creepy movie so yeah i just saw that you watched that again the other night and i was like oh yeah that brought, kind of brought back that memory
1: because i knew you were coming on i was like well i've seen burial ground enough times but like it's I've had the Blu-ray on my shelf for a bit. So I was like, I'm just going to throw that on for a rewatch because it's like, I have fond memories of that movie, Mm -hmm. granted. And it also helps set up burial ground to become one of my personal favorite in theater (laughs) experiences ever because we were out of our fucking minds. when burial ground went on.
4: Right, right yeah it's a shame you didn't live out here for like some of these 24 hour thons because yeah every now and then they'll hit me with a movie that like wasn't on my radar or was on my radar but i just underestimated it. and yes this shit just goes nuts whatever i guess you guys are having fun out there on the west coast bunch of traders.
1: <laughs> i mean it's not bad out here i mean it's a little hot <laughs> it's a little hot right now i'm sure there's fires and earthquakes
4: and, right hey you know
1: when it'll eventually fall into the pacific ocean but like eh, it's not bad it's Obviously. looking great <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know what's <laughs> funny thing of Exum films is like now like when i book stuff for cinematic void we i book a lot of harry's prints and harry mm-hmm. harry's part of exhume film so it's it's funny that some of the same prints we watched like maybe fuck probably 15 years ago at this point
4: longer i mean we started I, I, my first exhume show i think it was like 97 or something so i mean we were definitely going there at like you know the late 90s early 2000s i mean we've been doing that we've been doing this shit for like 20 some years
1: dude it, i i sometimes forget how old i actually i know i know it's ridiculous
4: i know we're <laughs> all like,
1: i mean look at you now man uh, not that you get anyone can see the podcast but bruce has the, the best pandemic beard i've seen at anyone drew <laughs> <true> one <laughs>
4: yeah it's it, this is like 16 months of growth
1: we've had a lot of guests but none of them had a fucking beard like
4: bruce whole check <laughs> i know and I yeah i gotta got cut it soon but i at least want to get that one day working
1: and now we're gonna talk about you know the i mean night, we're, we're
4: gonna talk about night of the demon
1: yeah well i was gonna say it's like it's, it's my favorite bigfoot big movie and i think it's probably your favorite for the same reason but why don't you tell us a little bit about night of the
4: demon So Night of the Demon opens with a professor in a hospital bed, uh, face wrapped in bandages, detailing to the police the horrible events that happened to him and his anthropology students. We then proceed to a flashback for the rest of the movie as the college gang head into the wilderness to investigate reports of a mysterious humanoid creature, as well as search for one of the girl's missing fathers. Anytime the pace begins to slow, we're treated to a flashback within the flashback, illustrating one of the most ridiculously gruesome encounters they've all heard about. A dude in a sleeping bag is swung around like a sack of potatoes before getting impaled on a tree branch. Uh, Two Girl Scouts are forced to stab each other to death with knives. Uh, A biker taking a piss has his cock ripped off. Uh, And that's just a few of the highlights. The kids hear about a woman named Crazy Wanda, who has a special connection to the creature? But along the way to her shack, they run afoul a Deep Woods Bigfoot cult, um, and it all leads to a slow-mo monster rampage that ranks amongst the best I've seen, complete with ripped-out intestines being swung around like a pair of goddamn nunchucks. And then, of course, there's even a twist ending. Night of the Demon is the kind of movie that, where the the title pops up over an image of a giant Sasquatch footprint being filled in with blood leaking from the stump of a man whose arm was just graphically torn off obviously it's pretty much the greatest movie ever made um it's I I really dig its uh kind of vignette structure I wasn't necessarily how it was originally conceived um but I think it's genius you know allows them to kind of ramp up the body count without ever needing to bother with characterization and it really ends up to me it's probably i would consider it the goriest bigfoot movie of them all which is all we ever really want i believe this was a uh, a video nasty which is which is how it became how, how i found out about it
2: really yeah yeah
4: it was um, i was gonna say yeah i fr- i first read about it in uh Chaz balanced deep red where he kind of you know talked about how ridiculous and gory it was i think it was a really short review it was only like two or three sentences but i'm pretty sure he did mention something about intestines being ripped out and it got like a seven on the gore score so i'm like whatever i'll go with it uh i actually think it's gory than the seven but whatever but at the time you know the 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 vhs tape of it uh like my rental shops didn't have it however one day in woolworth at mm-hmm. harford mall they had a cheapo ep speed tape of it back in their electronics section for two dollars and eighty eight cents you know, on, on, uh, uh, Saturn productions. They also like, that's where I've got my first copy of a uh, toxic spawn, which was a retitling of Luigi Cozzi's alien contamination, jungle Holocaust, which was like a, a slightly letterbox print. It was cut, but it was still at least in somewhat of a, a better framing than the full frame uh, video city tape Uh, because at the time it was impossible to find jungle holocaust in full scope like there was no video release in the world that i know of that uh had full scope uncut in english but yeah a whole shitload of like bad kung fu movies does anybody even know what the hell like a war is anymore well do they do they they, they even have department stores anymore like i remember there was like Ames and best and like used to go in there and like they had like the basically like your mom could go in and buy a dress and like you go back corner and like buy a gun uh <laughs> we well, yeah, at woolworth there was kind of like a little diner attached that right was like yeah, woolworth yeah diner too so we would always eat there and then shop you know right right you go get burgers and shakes and then like <laughs> fucking like steal some baseball cards
1: <laughs> i mean that that was the harford mole experience i i, I can't remember what we talked about on the podcast i did a video nasties uh episode of screen drafts where this mm-hmm. was i made sure this was one of my top video nasties <laughs> because you okay. can't really argue against the bigfoot rips off someone's dick
4: right it yeah. is
1: yeah so but i know i talked at length about warps on that because like <laughs> I, th- I think we probably bought this the same day because we were just going through that bin probably just, you're like what should we get and you're like you need night mm-hmm. of the demon
4: <laughs> right kind of like so there was a time that we went over eric neal's house uh and like we wrote we rode over to like circuit city and remember they had a cheapo dvd of uh roadhouse there and I bought it, and you guys were all, like, making fun of me. You are like, oh, Patrick Swayze, Roadhouse. I'm like, you guys don't fucking know. Uh, so then we went back to Eric's house, and I made you guys watch Roadhouse, and then afterwards, we all drove back to Circuit City, and you guys all bought your own copies because the movie was so fucking fantastic, and nobody will believe me that it was awesome.
1: I, in my defense, when I was growing up, my mom watched <laughs> a lot of Patrick Swayze movies, so I think I, for some reason, connected to Dirty Dancing. Not that Dirty Dancing's a bad movie. It's actually a good movie, but yeah, I guess- I mean,
4: it is atypical. <laughs>
1: but the the thing is, it's like once you see Patrick Swayze's rip out someone's throat, right? There's n- there's no coming back. I I remember when we screened a 35 millimeter print roadhouse, and basically the whole introduction, I'm just like stick around for the throat rip. So about <laughs> so when the throat rip actually happened, it was a loud cheer. That's funny. And unfortunately, that 35 millimeter print doesn't exist anymore because one of those um fancy delivery companies that ships prints destroyed it. Oh my god, that sucks. They, the amount of, like, I don't want to name the company, but they have destroyed many prints to the point that there's no new prints of them anymore. They destroyed the last like good invasion, of the Body Snatchers print. Roadhouse. It, I guess maybe they just hate Park Circus, who handles a lot right. of those MGM titles, which also is like United Artists and that kind of stuff.
4: It only costs like two grand to strike a new print. Like, why would the fuck wouldn't they just do that? I mean, you make that back in ten rentals, you know?
1: Uh, not for a film that was shot on film, because if you're scanning, for the, if it's a new movie and you're doing a digital out to film, it's two grand. But if you're doing like a restoration, because like when the tech got their um. 2001 a space odyssey 70 millimeter print mm-hmm. restruck and it was off a. Uh, it was like four it was four four removed from the actual camera negative so it was like i think it was an inner negative like or inner positive i forget what it is like there's a couple things you could step off of but like it because it was coming from a film's force it was a lot more expensive but like interesting. but newer films people you know for two grand if you make a film the shot digitally you digital out to like film to like a film print two grand's a fucking steal right but back to night of the demon so on a, <laughs> on a scale the one to ten oh. the bigfoot scale oh what were you gonna say Bruce
4: well I was gonna say you know one of the most interesting things about the movie you know I did bring up kind of like it's it's uh structure you know it's kind of flashbacks within flashbacks you know anytime something was flagging you know anytime the, the pace was flagging they'll just kind of shove in another like graphic scene so the movie was actually originally shot as a pg if you can imagine such a thing they had one screening uh and J- joe rubin uh from vinegar syndrome kind of filled me in uh on some of this information they had one screening as the pg version and they wanted to sell it to like somebody like roger corman or something but nobody bought it um they couldn't sell the damn thing so actually producer jim ball uh who had a his now, these guys all came from a gay porn background. Um, so these, you know, they were, uh, you know, Jim Ball, Buddy Ball was, uh, you know, involved in the uh, gay porn scene before this, but that, you know, like a lot of these porn filmmakers, uh, as time went on, horror movies became started to become more profitable. So they just tried to, uh, you know, try their hand at a horror movie, but you know, with the PG horror movie, it wasn't selling. So Jim Ball, the producer and co writer of the movie, came back and he's actually the one responsible for all the gore scenes that were filmed at a later date to try to spice up the movie uh to make it sellable. Um and then they did end up selling it. Uh as far as I know, then the gored up version never had a real theatrical release. Um you know you, you'll find some ad mats out there for Night of the Demon, but that's actually like a retitling of a different movie. But yeah, they sold it to uh VC2, who was like kind of like the mainstream offshoot of the porn company VCX for VHS. Um and that's where you know it's kind of sad ever since so yeah the code red dvd was uh actually pulled from the old uh vc2 master although if this movie which is the greatest bigfoot movie of all time and possibly the greatest movie of all time if this sounds like something you're interested in i would recommend uh holding off because you know a, a little birdie might have told me that something might be in the works
1: and couldn't can't imagine what you're talking about
4: no i mean i'm just saying
1: yeah i mean you never know things things happen in the universe miraculous <laughs> things but we'll just leave it at that but if you need to see it it's out there but like and i you know even in its weird shitty like one inch tape master which is i think i think the quality of the vhs tape we had is about the same quality as the code red <laughs> right
2: hey jim did you did you do this as a cinematist movie
1: i did this a- in the
2: past year and a half
1: yeah when i started doing cinematic movie screenings like early mm-hmm. on and i had no idea what the fuck the show and this is more right. like i kind of got it more legitimate because i thought <laughs> I was good, well i at one i thought i was going to do it for four weeks and never have to do it again
4: right yeah we see but, how that turned out <laughs> yeah
1: now This keep on going but stop right, stop Nick. the spread stop the spread <laughs> <laughs> i mean Fl- I,
4: flatten the curve
1: it was a fun idea to think I could do it like an online screening once a week. But like, no, it wasn't. But I mean, I'm <laughs> I, I'm glad people enjoyed it. But like, yeah, one of the movies I did early on, I think it was the fourth movie I ended up doing was Night of the Demon. Okay. And a lot of people hadn't seen it. Right. So I, and I, you know, say, just let them go in cold. No mention of dick ripping or whatever. <laughs> but after that, I mean, people were just like, I can't believe this is a fucking movie. It's like, you can't believe it's the greatest movie there you go <laughs> yeah it's
4: so good it's so good
1: but yeah it's it, it's it's a weird thing because like not a lot of people it also came late in that whole bigfoot cycle too because you got thinking the 70s. Yeah, it was
4: 80 it was 80 yeah um i mean it was shot earlier obviously i mean i think the one screen copyright notice is 79 but it was actually uh shot a bit before that and you know because they they've finished the whole movie and then had to go back and reshoot a whole bunch of shit for it. I guess it first came out in the 80, but yeah, it's copyrighted 79. And I'm sure some bits were shot a few years before that. It also had a different title originally too, didn't it? Yeah. Something like, it was like the revenge of Bigfoot or something stupid like that. Uh, I think as well was filmed under.
1: Cause I, I think neither demon, the title that came after it was because Bigfoots were out of vogue. So they had to like, well, kids love demons. Don't they? <laughs> right.
4: <something>. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: no one can tell the difference between like a hairy like man ape or a <laughs> demonic force
4: well and the mo- it's funny because you know i talk about the monster in abominable being real funky looking but yeah this has got one funky ass bigfoot too
1: <laughs> it, it kind of looks like i i think the i mentioned it when i did the Cinematus movie episode it looks like chakra from um maybe that's not the name from land of the lost but like one. Of <laughs> it those. does
4: it does it really does He's like, like the total missing link right
1: <laughs> and i think the bigfoot kind of changes appearance at one point because i think it's like more i think the reshot footage or the, mm-hmm. the added footage it's like more bulky and hairier and like right kind of more bear-like than well, it's, <laughs> and then when you see the when you see it up close at the end where it's just like going balls to the wall it's like it's it's a little bit of softer bigfoot i think
4: yeah that that climax is so fantastic like the whole thing's in goddamn slow-mo for like (laughs) no just so you can appreciate the awesomeness that's happening like every frame of awesomeness
1: so i you know if i hope everyone who hasn't seen any of these bigfoot movies makes a point to check them out and if they're not good versions of them out yet push your local boutique labels because i would love to see hd of all these especially Demon Warp and Night of the Demon. So anything else you want to say about Bigfoot before we close out here, Bruce? No, just keep on stomping. <laughs> keep on stomping. We're going to take one last commercial break, but when we return, it'll be read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Fire here, and, going to stay
4: up and watch it.
0: Oh yeah, Linda's going to stay up and watch it. It's part of her job.
4: What? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm afraid after tonight, someone is going to have to stand guard. We're already in Bigfoot territory. Where all those people were killed. Those stories, those horror stories you heard about in the forest, they're true. They're all true.
1: Welcome back. It's now time for... On the cinematic void podcast where we talk about all the things we've been reading watching and or listening to and bruce since you're the guest why don't you tell us what you've been reading watching and or listening to
4: all right so here's the issue <laughs> uh, <laughs> when i was getting this together i forgot that reading was part of it <laughs> so uh i i can i can talk about some stuff i got recently to read okay i haven't i haven't necessarily started reading it yet um, so I did get the uh, uh, New Bleeding Skull book, uh, their tribute to 90s titles. So that looks good. I haven't read it yet. I got uh, that that Pulse publication uh, post-nuke book that Severin Films had available during their sale after the world ends. A book, a nice hardback book. Looks good. Has a lot of cool pictures. Dedicated to all sorts of post-nuke films, uh, post-apocalyptic movies, uh, and not just the Italian ones that you're normally familiar with. This one really kind of looks pretty thorough, but again, I haven't really read it, so I can't say if it's any good. I got the new issue of Fangoria in the mail, uh, cover story on werewolves within also some, uh, you know, American Werewolf from London retrospective pieces. Have you seen, have you guys seen Werewolves within yet? I drove Wait. down the I drove down to the Charles to see that like two weeks ago and I didn't realize that the mask mandate was still on in Baltimore City because it hadn't been out here in the county for a while. Uh, so I just like strolled in like a jerk, like without a mask on, and they're like, Uh, excuse me, sir, can you please put on a mask? I'm like, What? <laughs>
1: they didn't uh, they they have they didn't have masks to offer you though?
4: Well, I mean, I just walked back out to my car and got one. I didn't argue. <laughs> but I but I mean I just didn't know you know i hadn't worn a mask in like months out here you know they don't have plastic shields up or nothing anymore
1: i mean out here is kind of weird with it because like there's the cdc guideline and then there's the la county guideline which is kind of vague and at this point Mm -hmm. it's like i just don't fucking know if i go to target i'm wearing a mask
4: yeah i mean out here it's just like everybody's just done with it (laughs) they're just like whatever uh so yeah it's no mass no distancing no well no anything i mean we you know we have really good rate you know really good percentages out here in the county you know so it, it's been okay plus i mean i've been vaccinated since like february
1: we actually but, did a premiere of werewolf within and i think we did a virtual q a haven't seen it yet but for very good things
4: i liked it i liked it it's kind of lightweight um but it's pretty fun little whodunit i like the cast um, I thought the script was really good. A lot of the secondary characters, they give them, like, a lot of really funny throwaway lines that are sort of, like, muttered in the background. Sort of like cooties. Did you see cooties? I did uh, see cooties. That had some of my favorite lines of, of, of all time, in it, including the one guy who, like, in the background, he's like, they're going to rip off your face like the monkey lady. Uh, I thought that was, like, the funniest thing. Like, it just struck <laughs> me so funny. But Werewolves Within... Uh, yeah, it actually it was a lot of fun. does not quite stick the landing, um, and like I said, it, it's pretty lightweight for the most part. But I, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun for Who Done It. We don't get enough Who Done This these days. No. So so yeah, that's the new issue. So I got I uh, got the new issue of Fangoria, which apparently I'm still subscribed to. I subscribed once, and apparently it's like an evergreen subscription because they just keep charging me for it and sending me this fucking magazine. So yeah, so those were those are the things I have sitting around here that I recently got and haven't read yet. Uh, So some good watches um, that I I picked out. I did watch uh, Alex Chung's uh, Cops and Robbers from 1979. It is a like Hong Kong new wave crime film. Shockingly good. It it, it involves a a criminal who steals a cop's gun and then goes on this like sort of like crime spree uh, trying to kill all the police. And it really kind of like as, as this like he's like this sort of like cackling maniac with a gun and it almost like devolves into a horror movie. Like towards the end, it gets like really frantic and really insane. So the, one of the things I like about these sort of like new wave Hong Kong films uh, from that period, like the late seventies, early eighties, is that they're so like, they have a completely different feel and they're so not stylized. Like once, you know, the John Wu stuff came in, like the really, you know, heroic bloodshed uh, kind of became popular. You know, it seems like the the films have like a whole different feel than like a lot of these new wave uh, titles do, like Cops and Robbers or uh, Troy Hark's Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, or Hired Guns and stuff like that. Coolie Killer. Uh, so yeah, uh, Cops and Robbers, uh, very high recommendation. I've also been going through the uh, Thin Man series from the 30s i don't know if you guys watched those uh but warner archives have put out a few on blu-ray now they're really cool it's kind of like tail end of screwball comedies but but pre film noir uh so they're these kind of like really funny mysteries um i don't know if you guys have seen any of these but uh it's William, william powell myrna Loy, and yeah you know william powell is sort of like a a retired detective uh who married rich so myrna Loy has a bunch of money and basically they're just like fucking drunk the whole time um and they just sit around and talk shit to each other but then they somehow they keep getting involved in like these murder mysteries and have to figure them out uh and they're they're so much fun the the dialogue is like really snappy you know it kind of comes from that sort of screwball aesthetic but they add this mystery element to them so yeah i've 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 only watched the first three so far because only the first three have been on blu-ray but i've really been enjoying the hell out of them
1: i've seen four of them because like i think warner put out a like a four pack at some point of those and i really enjoy them also enjoyed daschle hammond in general who wrote yeah. the thin man who also wrote um the maltese falcon but both are totally different and if you're looking for a christmas movie the thin man <laughs> will also meet that need as well
4: there you go yeah yeah it's funny i think out here at the charles um which is baltimore's art house theater um i think it was last new year's eve they actually played the, the original thin Man on 35 millimeter but i didn't go see it uh well actually not this last new year's eve one before uh i I forgot we lost a year (laughs) (laughs) 2020
1: that year that just didn't exist
4: right yeah jesus but yeah so yeah i've really enjoyed uh making my way through those and then uh so me and me and a buddy of mine and a buddy of yours um even though you haven't talked to him in 40 years uh uh, so we usually get together like once a week and do movie nights Uh, and lately we've kind of been on like an 80s gang tear so two of the two of the more memorable ones have been uh, three fifteen, the moment of truth, uh, and this really bonkers one called Street Soldiers. That's a VHS holdout. Um, but I actually tracked down the kung fu instructor from the movie, <laughs> and i wanted to try to get an interview with them, uh, just because the movie is like possibly the greatest thing I ever saw. And actually, it was recommended to me by uh, Sam Deegan, so I can't even take credit for finding it. But yeah, it was uh, I immediately like when she told me about it, I, I bought the uh, VHS of it and it did not disappoint um and also uh so we watched the shaw brothers movie that I was a little bit late on um because you know i remember people talking about it when the hateful eight came out um but there's a shaw brothers movie from 1972 called the black tavern that follows a, a pretty similar trajectory um like it's it's snowing outside there's a, a a coach that pulls into uh this sort of like restaurant um and like all these different people kind of converge on this one location and all of them kind of have their own secret motives, and you're not quite sure who's up to what and who's like trying to do what at this place. And the kung fu goes crazy. There's multiple decapitations. There's crazy bull whippings. Um, it just goes really bonkers. And especially for 1972, it was really bloody and a lot more violent than we were expecting. So I mean, it like immediately jumped like in, into my top 10 Shaw Brothers movies. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so that's what I uh, that's what I've been watching uh listening i i I almost listen to like no new music like like i I just listen to like a lot of like prog rock and like soundtracks and uh but there's a, a facebook page called what do you know about sky punk and they've been putting out they've been putting out this compilation series that's like it's like mp3 cds and they're double disc sets and it's literally hundreds of bands hundreds of currently active ska bands wow. and, <laughs> right like who would have thought uh well so, i, I mean, mean
2: it's it's definitely uh you know just just due to the 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 the, the cyclic nature of 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 life like ska right. is exactly. coming it's it's you know it's fucking do it's overdue <laughs> really you, you know whether we like it or not that shit's coming back
1: <laughs> damn straight it's it's the 90s um, again like literally <laughs> yeah, like right if, if you look at generation z fashion it's all 90s shit so why yeah, wouldn't yeah, scott come back
4: right uh now i mean i'm not saying all the bands on there are good like most of them are garbage and like unlistenable so you definitely skip through a lot of the tracks Um, uh, but every now and then there's been a few just like the that 90s been, like, right just like the 90s right <laughs> But yeah, every now and then you'll you'll stumble upon one where you're like, wow, this is actually like really fucking good.
2: Right on. (laughs) So yeah, uh,
4: as far as soundtracks go, you know that movie that Mono Macabre put out, The Slave? Um, Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a erotica kind of thing. Uh, So Nathaniel Thompson from Mondo Digital talked me into buying the soundtrack CD to that. And uh, it's this double disc set and it's absolutely amazing. Uh, A ton of uh, music made for the movie that wasn't used in the movie, but it's this really good uh, jazzy score and that's been like fantastic and then the other thing so me and uh me and the watched uh the boys next door recently that like spree killing movie with uh max caulfield and charlie, charlie sheen. sheen yeah that uh severin put that out on blu-ray um so we had had it sitting around and you know hadn't watched it so we decided to give it a, a go during one of our movie nights and number one the movie was fantastic uh directed by penelope spheres and she's always great at picking amazing music so there was one song in there that we were like listening to it we're like who the fuck is this uh and both of us were like completely convinced it was alice cooper uh but i'm like this isn't any alice cooper song i know but then it turns out so, so we uh you know did a, a thing you know checked it on my phone to see uh you know let listen and tell me who was who uh, i would say the name of the service that i would i used but that would bring it up on my phone and scroll up on my notes uh, <laughs> Which actually happened to me. I was pronouncing some uh, some, char- some Chinese name in when I was doing the Untold Story commentary, and it launched that app <laughs> in the middle of me recording the goddamn commentary. Uh, so yeah. So if you if you listen to the if you listen to the audio commentary I did on the Untold Story Blu-ray that Unearthed Films put out. Uh, you might notice that there's like a, a, a bit towards the end where it just goes dead for like a minute because we had to cut it all out because <laughs> it was just like total, it was total fucking chaos so that wasn't censorship that was just a, a technology malfunction um anyway so the song ended up not being by alice cooper it's actually a, a it was a collaboration from iggy pop and james williamson um and they did like this whole cd together that apparently like i guess it was recorded back then but like didn't come out for like years later or something one of the songs from it is in uh uh whatever that movie was
3: it (laughs) was next (laughs) door next
4: door uh and it was a really really cool song so yeah i got the full uh cd and i've been listening to that a lot lately it's not quite alice cooper but uh what is nick what have you been reading watching and or listening to
2: all right let's start with reed i've been reading uh (laughs) uh, i've been reading thomas legati's the conspiracy against the human race he is a typically a uh a fiction more of a horror fiction writer but he just wrote this philosophical book about how basically the human race doesn't need to be here we don't deserve to be here we will whatever like it's basically just a bleak book about like fuck everything it's just <laughs> but yeah that's
1: what i'm reading um which unearthed film are you going to tell us about this week
2: i'll i'll get there um, <laughs> I'll, I'll get there but uh so i just rewatched for probably the third or fourth time this year Kieslowski's, uh *Blue*, okay. which, if you don't know, it's about it's Juliette Binoche and she plays a widow, and her husband was a uh, a conductor, and he was making this important piece, and he died before it it was it came out before it's finished, and so she kind of like Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain style. They like did you know people say like Kurt wrote, lived through this, you know maybe she wrote his <laughs> uh, compositions, you know. But, uh, so just one of my favorite movies of all time. And, uh, I just really, it's just a beautiful, uh, French art film from the nineties, uh, 93, I think. Um, and really, if you haven't seen this, like, please fucking check out the entire trilogy. Uh, the three colors, uh, blue, white, and red by Christophe Chris, um, beautiful stuff. Uh,
4: I also just watched and and, uh, and currently, uh, half price at Barnes and Noble, Oh Uh, well, actually, I don't know when this, I don't know when this is gonna air. But
1: <laughs> it, it's gonna right. it's gonna air just as the Barnes and Noble half price on Criterion sales coming to an end. So. Gotcha. But absolutely
2: so-, so grab that for sure. Criterion. Uh, I also just watched The Twelve Chairs, Mel Brooks, uh, his film before oh, yeah. Blazing Saddles, um, which I was actually unaware of until quite recently. And it's fucking hilarious. Russian <laughs> folktale style, kind of like uh, Woody Allen's Love and Death or something like that. Mel Brooks' character in particular is just like perfectly just like the idiot it's just he's great um highly recommended it will be playing at the arrow in santa monica uh on the 29th um so check that out if you're in the area um, <laughs> the,
1: the day this podcast comes out oh
2: is that is that okay so yeah, yeah hurry hurry to the arrow theater <laughs> um, <laughs> i just uh i just listened to this uh npr podcast uh, where it was just uh, John Waters talking about how he wished he directed Salo, um, oh, wow. so that yeah, um, pretty good. Although it was, it's only like 15 minutes long, I wish it was an hour longer because right. that man could gush about Pasolini. So uh, hmm. yeah, it's very cool, but uh, it, sh- it should have been much longer. It's a fucking podcast. Joe Rogan does four-hour podcasts every day. do a four-hour podcast of John Waters talking about fucking Salo. Come (laughs) on, guys.
4: I could listen to John Waters talk about anything. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, really. I've I've seen him a couple times live, and uh, yeah, he's always hysterical. So yeah, I'd be fully on board. Uh, I even buy, like, whenever he does new books, I buy audio tape versions of it just so I can listen to him say it, you know? Hell yeah.
2: Right on. (laughs) Uh, So then that led me to watch uh, Pink Flamingos the other night, Um, you know? Classic, but I actually haven't seen it since the 90s. So it, right. it, it, it hit super hard. Uh did Divine really eat that shit at the end?
1: Yes. Yes.
2: Fuck yes. <laughs> fucking respect. <laughs> respect to Divine. Uh I just saw the jerk at the arrow uh in Santa Monica. Um I picked up that print from Universal a few weeks ago. 35 millimeter. The fucking jerk, guys. Carl Reiner. It was awesome. Um, the the writer that one of the writers of the film, uh Mike. Elias, I I think that's I think that's the name. Just, Let, ball, let's, just let's just let's just roll with it. it.
4: Yeah, I was gonna say he's not gonna listen.
2: Yeah, right. Um, I, yeah, I think that's it, Michael Elias. But uh, he showed up and he came and he went up and did an intro, uh, just like kind of on the spot, and uh, and he said that when he had driven by and saw the marquee of so the jerk, he texted Steve Martin and said the arrow is showing the jerk tonight, and Steve Martin said, "Yikes." <laughs> So, (laughs) fuck it. Awesome. Uh, It's great to see it with the crowd. Fucking hilarious. You know, one of the greatest comedies of all time, in my opinion. And then, uh, you know, after Pink Flamingos, I had to then watch Salo.
4: Of course. Let's fucking go. (laughs) Keep the the shit eating going.
2: That's it. So, so yeah, I watched that uh, last night. And it's, uh, you know, since I've been on the string of watching all these unearthed films, solo is i mean it's a, it's an art film in general and it's 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 actually it's beautiful it's poetry um but yes they're eating shit and biscuits with nails in them and fucking <laughs> they're on leashes and it's fucking insane but uh if you have the uh the tolerance for that sort of thing it's really it's it's highly recommended and kind of like I, uh what i was getting at was it's kind of not as crazy as it, as it's maybe it's reputation now you know like this many years later uh people have done such crazy shit you know so it's like right yeah you know it's 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 reputation is is it deserves it but at the same time just watch the fucking film it's not that crazy like just just watch it it's fucking great
4: my first copy of salo was when reptilian records decided to start renting videos like they had bought out they had (laughs) bought out like some local other uh rental stores inventory and chris x started Uh, Renting out tapes from Reptilian Records, which, if you're not from the Baltimore area, the Reptilian Records was this giant punk rock record store um, that had been there like since I was a kid. Uh, And it was the place to go uh, if you wanted to buy punk rock shit. Uh, So they started renting out like a bunch of weird videos. So essentially, I would bring down Chris X dupes of Hong Kong action movies because he really liked, you know, a lot of the Hong Kong action stuff. Um, So I would just make him copies of like whatever new Hong Kong action movies I got in and he would let me take whatever i wanted for rent uh so that's like where i got my first copy my first bootlegs of like uh Dario argento's uh uncut tenebrae and phenomena um i remember i got uh, a sweet movie there sallow nathan schiff's long island cannibal massacre like all this shit um but and the the, the Hodorowski movies like uh, he had this fucking print of holy mountain that like the sound was out of sync by like three seconds so like everything <laughs> was off and it just got worse as the movie went on uh, but the bootleg of salo that they had actually it was like a uh, it was struck from an actual film print so it actually had the leaders to it like in between all the real changes it would have the countdowns like you, you, so you'd be watching this movie then you know every 20 minutes or whatever you'd have a countdown from 10 uh into it uh but yeah that was actually how i first saw Salo. Wow.
2: Right. And then lastly, although I didn't finish it, but Bruce and I did talk about it earlier. <clears throat> so I have to mention it. I started mm-hmm. watching, and this is in reference to Jim. Uh, this is in, it's not an unearthed film, but I believe it's distributed by them. <clears throat> is this film called Trauma uh, by mm-hmm. uh, Lucio A. Rojas. And I kind of only saw the beginning and then not not anything to do with the film, but I fell asleep. It was fucking late. But the, the film opens with, uh, they basically force this, kid who's maybe in his early 20s or something they bring him to this room and they force him to fuck his mom <laughs> and then while he's fucking his mom they blow his mom's brains out and then force him to keep fucking her but they've injected him with this thing and, <laughs> and so then it basically kind of like you know it's insinuating that whatever they injected him with like is making him do it you know mm-hmm. and so then he's just like going crazy fucking his mom while she's like had, had her brains blown out okay. fucking, aw- fucking awesome great start to a film so i will watch the rest but you know that's my that's my unearthed film for the week
4: (laughs) so i had uh i had heard that that was an extreme one i didn't know any of that but i bought the fucking blu-ray because art exploitation put it out on blu-ray so i bought the blu-ray back in march off of amazon and it still has yet to ship they still like this whole time they're like oh we're trying to get this for you i'm like really how hard are you trying amazon come on but yeah, so I'm writing a. Uh, I, I picked it up because I, yeah, I heard it was nasty, and it's you know I'm writing a book that that will uh, be uh in the scope of. So yeah, I wanted to include it, but if I can't get it, then eh, maybe not. I, I believe yeah, it's, it's known it's, as the uh Chilean Serb- Serbian film. Right. I was going to say it sounds yeah. like on that level, right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember. So we did a movie night with a, a Serbian film. I remember it was me uh the haven and uh, uh this girl i was dating at the time and like after the movie was over like none of us were like even like wanting to talk to each other we we're all just <laughs> like,
2: <"Ugh." laughs> like everybody was
4: just moping around it's we like oh <laughs> it's fucking
2: great i love right. it yeah it's fantastic <laughs> it's fantastic uh, as far as listen goes Uh, Last night I went to uh, a jazz club called the baked potato and saw a band called the M squad and they played fifties and sixties, like jazz TV and movie themes. So they did like all the James Bond themes they did. um, uh, They did a bunch of like the, the Lilo Schifrin themes. Right. Um, To to bring it it full circle. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Um, So yeah, it was, it was fucking, it was great. Baked potato. Um, is owned by Don Randy who played piano on God Only Knows by the Beach Boys on Pet Sounds, (laughs) um, which is fucking super cool. Also, Nick Menza, who was in Megadeth, who played drums on um, uh, Rust in Peace. Rust in Peace, right. And, uh, you know, a few others, but like that one in particular, because that's my favorite. Exactly. Um, He died playing drums in this room. He had a heart attack while he was playing this tw- in 2016. He was playing oh, for wow. some jazz band. Yeah. Um, but yeah, went there last night. Fucking awesome experience. I can't wait to go back. So uh yeah, shout out baked potato I went with uh Eduardo. But yeah, so that was that's one of the things I've been listening to. The M Squad. Um, also Freso D Farrow Bury Me Standing. It's like a um, I guess they call it like folk uh you know folk whatever folk industrial folk goth whatever i i actually deleted the more folky like renaissance fair <laughs> songs off of it and so the rest of it's just weird like sound collage fucked up electronics and it's fucking incredible um also been listening to just more uh atrax Morgue, wound fucker sickness report like all that shit is just fucked up and nasty um, right. and i love it and uh also today uh for some reasons so i was feeling ultra 90s since we were all hanging out today so i listened to uh bad religion no control um although that maybe came out in the 80s but i it was my record in the 90s you know right right and yeah i
4: guess it's about it for me yeah i can't help but notice you didn't listen to uh, any ska i didn't hear any ska in there yeah i don't know not 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 vibing on it lately <laughs> By lately, you mean 25 years? <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> I tried to listen to Suicide Machines if maybe a few months ago
1: or something. I was just still like, no.
2: <laughs> no. We'll leave that in the past.
4: That's funny. I
1: guess for my rewatch and listen, read, uh, I got my copy of After the World's End as well. I've actually, I think I read a couple pages, but I've basically been thumbing through and seeing all the the pretty pictures of post-nuke films right, from... Right obviously Mad Max and all the Italian stuff. And also has the interview with Steve Jeanette, who um, wrote Miracle, wrote and directed Miracle Miles. So that was kind of surprising that that's in there too.
4: A solid 10 movie, if ever there was one. It is. It's another
1: great LA movie. So that's my read. Watch. I've been working through the televised terror volume one from Vinegar Syndrome. So Are You in the House Alone, Calendar, Calendar Girl Murders, and Child of the Night. The last two has Tom Skerritt in it. The last one has Elijah Woods and I think his first role or one of his really earliest roles, and mm-hmm. also has Darren McGavin returning to Seattle after being <laughs> in the Night Strangler, the right. the second Col Jack um, Night stalker TV, TV movie, right. And I also watched Zetter or is it Zeter or how do you actually say it Bruce? Uh,
4: I pronounce it zeter, but I might be totally mispronouncing it. That's just how I look, back when we were learning about this shit, uh <laughs> nobody was saying it so we had to just kind of guess how these things were pronounced uh so like if i learned it the wrong way then that's just the way i'm stuck with it uh, uh but yeah i always pronounce it zader but i have no idea if that's right Like I could, look, I could look it up but i'm not going to nah it's fine <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't even remember they probably say it in the fucking movie itself but i don't remember
1: <laughs> but yeah i i guess because i knew you were coming on and like i hadn't watched this in forever so it's like eh, it's a nice slow burner wouldn't say it's really a zombie movie it's it's kind of like it's a slow burn version of pet cemetery in a way except there's no pet cemetery yeah yeah
4: actually yeah i remember that right
1: but there's some eerie similarities to it so if you like slow burns if you like italian zombie movies and you like kind of art horror they'll be up your alley also been watching the last season of good girls with my Mm -hmm. wife morgan that's she got me into this show and Surprisingly, well, not surprisingly, they just announced they're canceling the show without doing the <laughs> fifth season, so there's going to be no closure to this, right? Which is always fun to know about a TV show. But like, the show is pretty good; it's really entertaining. Listen wise, I listened to the new Dark Throne Eternal Hails, mm-hmm. um, a band that my wife just introduced me t- to, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this name right. I think it's Winter Falleth. It's spelled Winter, and then it's F Y L L E T H. They're like, not I think a. I think they're a UK kind of like black metal, melodic metal type band. Mm-hmm. It's a record from 2016 called The Dark Hereafter. And the other thing I thrown on was Dark Funeral, the Secret of the Black Arts for some just some gnarly, noisy black metal.
4: So okay. I like I like my black metal uh a lot less true and cult. I like the sissier black metal uh with like it, full of synthesizers and like <laughs> and like forest instruments so yes yeah a lot, a lot of pagan metal a lot of viking metal
1: i mean you might want like winter fall because it's kind of goes that way it's not it's not as like it's not dark throne or like vaughn or any like the low fly end of the right. spectrum but yeah i hate that stuff <laughs> <laughs> but you love sky I was it's gonna like... say
4: I'm the I'm the complete opposite of any <laughs> what, what people who like real black metal are. <laughs> you're,
1: you're basically you're basically you hot. Don't topic. care about
4: some like right, Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm totally hot topic black metal.
1: That wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Bruce, where can people find you online if they want to follow your adventures in movie watching?
4: I'm on all of social media. Just uh, look for uh, Cinema Arcana, uh, and if you can't figure out how to spell it, then I don't want you to follow me
1: fair point respect (laughs) (laughs) until next time. See you. you